I feel the need. The need for a podcast exploring the films and career of Tom Cruise. Oh, welcome to Cruise Views! (laughs) (laughs) Jesus wept. (laughs) The the waveform in my program is insane. Hello, welcome to our Tom Cruise podcast, Cruise Views, in which we try to find out how Tom Cruise became one of the last ever movie stars by reviewing his entire filmography in chronological order. I'm Adam Scott Glasspool, and with me, as always, is a weak, bald-headed humanoid milling about in his milky bath, Tom Ashford. (laughs) Hi, guys. (laughs) And as you probably guessed from that excellent introduction to Tom, uh, we've reached 2002 and the sci-fi action thriller minority report uh we have a guest joining us to discuss this film and it's our first ever repeat guest it's only steve bloody murphy hello boys hello boys (laughs) (laughs) have you ever noticed how your theme tune your theme song is really like mission impossible well, I, we we discussed this on the Mission Impossible episode. We were hmm. flabbergasted to discover that. Yeah, uh, we are yeah. pretty sure that they ripped us off. Yeah, that that makes sense. That's the only like silly op- option, isn't it? Really, it though, be the other way around. Though I do feel because we probably aren't going to bring a lawsuit against Danny Elfman. Um, probably, probably. Eh, I think it's worth pointing out options. that he goes down when I go up, and I go up when he goes down. That's what I've heard. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey. Oh. Oh. Hey. I'm it's pulling my collar because it's warm. Show. It's not that kind of show. Uh, Steve, how does it feel to be the first repeat guest uh, on Cruise Views? I'm the first ever returning guest, and I was your first ever guest. Mm. That's Yeah, that's true. It feels um, terrible. It feels awful. Does it feel really bad? Yeah. yeah. Obviously, we booked oh. you for the second one. Um, it was like a package. We didn't know what you would be like on the yeah. first one when we booked you for two. So yeah. we're stuck mean, that, with you, unfortunately. That was in my terms and conditions, because if you'd heard yeah. the Risky Business episode, you would never yeah. have booked me. Yeah, that's your thing. If you do one, you got to do two. That's that's your whole that's thing. What they, that's what they say. Um, has your relationship to or with Tom Cruise... Uh, changed since you were on the show to do Risky Business. Yeah, because if you remember, he was my brother. Well, right, yes, I do remember. I you, now, yeah. now you've said it, I remember. Yeah. Well, okay. It turns out that's not true. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. So Tom Cruise, not my biological brother. Oh, okay. Wow. So you were you were adopted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, uh, by Tom Cruise, which is oh, which so is he's very, your dad. Yeah. He's but he's not my biological dad. No, I thought yeah. he was my brother growing up, but uh, turns out he's my top. He was dad. your dad. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, that. Uh, in terms that. of in terms of entertainment and movies, though, <laughs> yeah, uh, you've kind of been, um, if not watching along, I know that you've been listening along to this very podcast. Uh-huh. Um, this very podcast. Big fan. Big fan. Um, second guest. <laughs> lovely, and yeah. um, I don't know. I'm wondering if uh, your kind of assumptions of the cruise have changed with the views. Mm, yeah, you guys should call this cruise views. Yeah, um, it's it's largely the same. But what it, it, it the podcast has made me 
watch movies I never would have watched. So I've seen, mm. I saw Jerry Maguire. I rewatched uh, Interview. What did, what, did, uh, what did you think of Jerry Maguire, Steve? Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? Oh, Tom's it's wrong. Absolutely oh, excellent. What did it's you give like four and a half, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely Lovely. incredible movie. Yeah. Lovely. That child is uh oh. just wonderful and he, he he makes me happy. What a curious young gentleman he is. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he was a curious young gentleman. Excellent, excellent um, stuff. What else did I watch? You know, I've talked to you. Tell me because Well, I tried to get you to watch a few good men before listening to the podcast for spoilers, and you just flat out refused. <laughs> Mm. You're an idiot. I don't think I'm going to refuse. I did stare at some blokes at a bus stop if I, and, and I assumed they were good men. So I did see a few good men. Um, okay. Yeah, that's mm. good. Yeah. Let's see if that makes uh, the edit. Yeah, probably not. Um, if uh, if that makes the edit, it means the episodes run slightly short. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I can't. I can't think of what. I mean, I don't imagine you watched Eyes Wide Shut. I did not. Oh, you went on. Um, you went on YouTube and watched the Tom Cruise bits from Magnolia. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that make you feel about Tom Cruise? Oh my god! I mean, in, that is an insane performance when he's literally vibrating um, mm. from acting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then Philip Seymour Hoffman having a little cry in the background, which is insane. I'm just going to bring it up again that that was improvised. Um, yeah, crazy. Yeah, good, good actor, isn't he? To know that that's to to be fair. I mean, I know he's like uh, a well known actor, right? But right to see to see some like ridiculous performances from him, I I hadn't hadn't seen that before, so that was quite nice. And then there was interview with the vampire. It's a film. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's something, it's, isn't it? It is it's great. Something. But it's There's something. a lot of stuff going on. There's yeah. a lot of stuff going on. Um, no, and I think guy. That, interesting guy. I think there's also a lot of stuff going on in Minority Report. You see what I've done there? It's good oh, segue, mate. I've That's moved us well film. onto the, film the topic uh, of the day, um, the uh, topic du jour, as it mm. were. Um, fill us in, Tom. Well, Adam, it came out on the 21st of June in the USA. That's the wide release. But we had to wait until the 4th of July here in the UK. But the gap is closing. That is that is one day after Tom Cruise's birthday. Yeah. I don't know if you, know if you knew that. Do you reckon they launched it on that day in the UK thinking it's, it's Independence Day? That's probably a big weekend for cinema. <laughs> There's no way. No, There's he was born no on the 4th of July. Uh, well, yeah, no, no, no. Oh, who um, who uh, directed this movie? It's f- famous Austin Powers actor Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> to spoil next week's episode. <laughs> I didn't even know he Do made films. Know- uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I thought he was just like a bit part actor from yeah. Vanilla Sky and Austin Powers in Goldmember. Yeah. But it turns out he actually makes films. Um, Is he in Goldmember? Yeah, he does loads of backflips. The only good bit of the movie. Anyway, look. <laughs> okay, okay. No, a- <laughs> I'll, send you, I'll send you the clip. Okay. Um, so, Steven Spielberg. Actually, there's absolutely no chance this episode runs even slightly short. No. Because, okay, so Steven Spielberg... <laughs> What do we know about Steven Spielberg, guys? Ready Player One's a great film. Oh, yeah, that's his only no. film. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Wept. That and Minority Report. Now, in all seriousness, the fact that I can throw out that as the film that I go, oh, Steven Spielberg's bad film, and it's not even that bad. 
Oh, it's pretty bad. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad, bad compared to the rest of his catalogue. But Mate, there are entire filmographies of directors that are bad compared to Steven Spielberg's back catalogue. That's what I mean, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's. It, yeah. uh, I mean, sh- should we go through and you guys tell me whether or not you've seen the movie? Yes, please. Well, this is the thing. I bet there's so many movies that are so huge that I didn't even know they were Spielberg. I'm going to do them in chronological order, and I genuinely think this will surprise you uh, with how many are, like, grouped together. So, Duel. I don't imagine you've seen Duel. No. No. The Sugarland Express. Okay, probably (gasps) not. No. The next one, Jaws. Yes! Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's his third film. Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I actually haven't yeah, seen which it. is his fourth film. Yeah, I. Um, yeah, it's annoying because it's Third yeah. Kind. Um, uh, although you haven't seen it, Tom. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, I I completely intend to. Like, it's on my to watch list that I genuinely want to watch it. Uh, I always Tom. just forget it's on my list. It's really good. Yeah, I know it's going to be really it's, good. And it's really good. Guess what genre <laughs> yeah. I really like, guys? Sci-fi. Yeah, it's sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I will watch it. Yeah, you'll like Close Encounters of the Kind. Then he did a World War Two comedy called 1941, which I think nobody has seen. Uh, but he followed that up with Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> have you seen that yeah. one, Steve? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh okay, yeah. I think okay. everyone's seen that a million times. Do you know what he did immediately after Raiders of the Lost Ark? E.T. <laughs> the extraterrestrial. At, at this point, it's funny that he's directed these movies. I know. So we are, because... we are like uh, seven years, uh, eight, eight years into his career, and he's already <laughs> done Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and E.T. Um, and then he does Indiana Jones: Temple of Doom. He does The Color Purple, Empire mm. of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Always is his first uh, is his last film of the of the eighties, and then we get into nineties Spielberg, which is kind of like it's kind of a big decade for Spielberg. Even though he has those classic seventies and eighties films, this is when he becomes just like the biggest director on earth. It's weird that it starts with Hook. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Love Hook. <laughs> that's that's Spielberg. Hooks crap um yeah but it's just drenched in nostalgia for me yeah i imagine i yeah, watched I, hook yeah. and um thought i'd missed something because i was so young so obviously harking back to just him being peter pan i was like oh, i haven't seen the first one i doesn't understand they're talking about when he was young what that is that is um slightly discombobulating and it's how steven spielberg just makes films because th- it's the same for minority report you are just chucked right in the middle of something and you're kind of playing catch up with it, and it's the same for uh, the next film he made, Jurassic Park. Mm. That's a good one. Where you're yeah. just chucked into the middle of that situation with the raptor in the thing, and you're like, you're not sure what's going on. It's one of the best things about the way Steven Spielberg makes films, to be honest. Um, Jurassic Park, big movie. Seen that one? Yeah, yeah, seen that one. Some of the um, dinosaurs. It is. That's right. Same yeah. year as Schindler's List. Insane. That's one I haven't seen. To be fair, you're insane. You got to be in the mood for it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Nah. Crack out the popcorn Friday, on Friday night, right? Fr- yeah. Friday night. Get a Domino's in. Sit down. Get your mates round. Yeah. Watch I'd... a bit of Schindler's <laughs> List. 
I mean, that is what I did. I did get a takeaway and watch Schindler's List. I literally so watched, I, was like, I, I need... ate a Domino's the last time I watched Schindler's List. Yeah, you've got to balance it out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, Treat yeah, yourself so. whilst watching the worst humanity has to offer. Well, the <laughs> other thing, I, I, I like the film. I think it's quite a good film, Tom, but uh, okay, each to their own. Um, <laughs> I good, good. Uh, the, the thing about Schindler's List is, yeah, it's, it is bleak, but it is also Steven Spielberg, who is an incredibly gifted filmmaker, and he makes it very watchable. To be honest, yeah, um, it's alarming how watchable he makes the Holocaust. Um, mm. And then straight after that, obviously craving something that wasn't a very serious drama, although also doing a serious drama in the same year, nineteen ninety seven, he does the Lost World, which is the Jurassic Park sequel, and Amistad, the uh, the slavery drama. Follows that up with Saving Private Ryan, mm. um, yep. which I think I always forget is Spielberg. Um, and then, right, we're we're edging closer to our our timeline here because he takes a couple of years off around Saving Private Ryan. One because he's developing Minority Report, which keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Um, and Tom Cruise is also developing the same thing. Basically, they get to like 1996 um, with or, or like 1995, where where Steven Spielberg has had Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, and Tom Cruise has had Mission Impossible and Jerry Maguire, and they just look at each other and go, "What would happen if we team up?" <laughs> like it surely it can only be the biggest film ever made which is why the fact that it's minority report is so uh weird and interesting um but he takes over from Stanley Kubrick on AI artificial intelligence yeah. um which is a weird movie have you guys seen that i haven't yes i it's have it's got Haley Joel Osment right and Jude Law yeah. is it that yeah. one yeah. yeah yes it is it is a weird movie i really like it it's good yeah yeah, that, I, I rewatched it not long ago, and it was better than I remember it being. Is it called AI artificial intelligence? Yes, it? just like a bit ET, like the extraterrestrial. ET. Yeah, it's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He just because Spielberg, you get that. Yeah, not a subtle director. What <laughs> he, wants to, he really wants to make sure hey. you understand what's going on. Yeah, he drops um, you right in the middle of it. And you're like, whoa, what's going on? And just to make sure the last half an hour of each of his movies, just, just, just so we're on the same page, just, this is so what clear. was happening. Okay. <laughs> he makes okay. a huge assumption in the last five minutes of all of his movies that yeah. no <laughs> member of the audience has understood anything that's happened. He in the really movie. backtracks on his big yeah, thing. He does. shoving the yeah. in there. It's like, actually, no, I've lost all confidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, Minority Report happens the same year as Catch Me If You Can. And then we set off on late period Spielberg, which is kind of like, in fits and starts, very interesting and very weird. Um, I particularly like the weird, haunted Spielberg of AI, Minority Report, and War of the Worlds, Munich, and those darker things that he does. But then he also does these super light things that sometimes don't work. So, catch me if you can. And The Terminal... Um, oh. The Terminal's a very weird movie. Um, then he does War of the Worlds in Munich. And then he does Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the Indiana Jones movie, and Adventures of Tintin. Uh, two very light kind of movies. Adventures of Tintin, by the way, absolutely fantastic, if you haven't seen that. I have uh, seen it. I saw it in, in on a 3D, 3D TV. Yes. in the cinema and uh, felt sick. Uh, mm. So that's what I say, share that movie with, so I need to rewatch that. Do rewatch it. It's really interesting what they do with with that movie, actually. Um, and then he make he he adapts the stage play War Horse, which I really think they should have called Wars. 
Mm. Didn't didn't rate that film. No, it's absolutely abysmal. Yeah. It's it's honestly Spielberg at his absolute most like clingy and mawkish and yeah, gross. But I did like Lincoln. Ooh, good film. Do you like Lincoln? I do. Is that Daniel Day Lewis? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have yeah. not seen that. Do you know who he plays in that film? Um George W. Bush? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um then he takes a little bit of a break and he does he comes back with um Bridge of Spies, which I think is excellent, and we've talked yep. about before on this podcast. Um Good the BFG, which is demented. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the post, which I really like. It's like him going back to like seventies thriller territory, which is kind of the same as Bridge of Spies, actually. Then Ready Player One, which is bad. Um, and then West Side Story, which I haven't seen. Good film. Yeah, I've I've heard that it's really really good. I'm really excited about watching it. Um, and it's interesting that the big blockbuster films of like two thousand and eight onwards aren't his better ones because in the nineties, genuinely his best films are the things like Jurassic Park. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, the big blockbuster films. And then later on in his career, I think the best stuff is the stuff like Bridge of Spies uh, and The Post and Munich and these like smaller films. The ones um, I haven't seen. Yeah, and, and yeah. because they are sort of like, they're adult dramas and it's not necessarily what you'd expect from Spielberg. But late period Spielberg, oh, Ah, I love it. I love it. And I'm really excited about his new film that's coming up called The Fablemans because it's um it's autobiographical. It's about a young Jewish filmmaker growing up as a child in Arizona, which is it's all about him, which is really interesting because I think Spielberg has loads of personal touches throughout all of his movies. Like I think he has something about dads. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think something might have happened with his dad at some point. But he he he's never done like a really really personal film. I don't think. I think Schindler's List was personal to him, but like because it's like, uh, On it's like personal a to like scale. yeah, it's personal yeah. to his culture rather than yeah. his personal experiences. Although culture informs your personal experiences, but what I'm saying is like Spielberg himself not a Holocaust survivor, although close to a lot of Holocaust survivors. Whereas The Fablemans is going to be about, kind of about Steven Spielberg. So that's very interesting. I mean, you've seen a lot of those films, guys, and some of them are the biggest films of all time. Yeah, it is an insane catalogue. Good movies. Good movies. Uh, good director. Well, he's all right, isn't he? He's no, uh, he's no Ron Howard. <laughs> I think that should be the tagline on all of his movie posters. Good movie. Good director. Good director. <laughs> no Ron Howard. The third line. <laughs> yeah. little, little asterisks. No Ron yeah. Howard. And a shrugging um, emoji. <laughs> it's interesting you mention Ron Howard because we, we, we labelled Ron Howard as a bit of a styleless director, right? Yeah. Like the guy that you Session get director. In. And like visually, does Steven Spielberg have a style? Um, this movie does. The one we were about to talk about. But I don't know if that's stylistically just for this movie. I can't picture the same thing going on. Maybe, actually. I think it has a tone. It's very shiny. I think Steven Spielberg has a tone. He does. I think all of his skills are in, like, storytelling, which yeah. is why the thing that we plucked out about Steven Spielberg that is, like, his trademark is, you know, the last five minutes really ram home the point or whatever, which 
is much more about his storytelling abilities than it is about his visual style. Having said that, I think if if you're really paying attention, he does have a style, and but a lot of it is stuff that is supposed to be invisible. So he's a real big fan of long single takes um, that move around a lot. And and like if there's a conversation between two characters, he'll usually just set up the camera and let them have it. Um, and he's really good at blocking. Um, Steven Spielberg's excellent at blocking. Do you guys? I, you guys know what blocking is? Yeah, I, well, I do. <clears throat> yeah, I also do. But ju- just if I, in case I didn't, right? like <laughs> For I know, that don't, and, and Tom knows. <laughs> yeah, we all know. So it's it, it comes it comes from the stage. It, it, it's like um, it's like where actors stand, and and. If a film, it's where actors stand in relation to where the camera is. So having someone closer to the camera and someone further away, he's really good at stuff like that, like balancing a frame. There's a really good piece of blocking where a piece of information is revealed while someone is doing up a bow tie. Um, mm-hmm. And he has him stand up and turn around and there's a chair between them. And he has to move the chair out of the way. It's an excellent piece of blocking that becomes one of the most threatening things ever without being inherently threatening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what scene you mean. Yeah, he's he's great at stuff like that, um, and that's who directed Minority Report. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Would you like to know who wrote it, Adam? I'd love to know who wrote it, Tom. Well, it was Scott Frank and John Cohen. They did the screenplay based on a short story by Philip K. Dick. Now, Philip K. Dick, famous sci-fi writer. Famous. I imagine. I imagine you could talk for ages about Philip K. Dick. I imagine he's a favourite of yours. Um, I mean, I've definitely read a couple of his books. I've read A Scanner Darkly, uh, and oh, yeah. which is good. Um, have you seen the film? I have seen the film. I did not. I don't think I realised it was Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that I noticed when I looked it up, and he did a lot of movies that are adapted into. He did a lot of sci-fi books that were adapted into sci-fi movies yeah total recall blade runner a scanner darkly yep. next the movie based on the popular high street chain um, and <laughs> Minority Report. um yeah he also did really Ma- man in the man in the high castle if you've watched the uh oh yeah the tv series of that the books was oblivion based on philip kate Killip Fay Dick. Killip Fay Dick. Killip Fay Dick. Uh, uh i don't know maybe maybe it's not uh, maybe I've made that up, and I think I've actually googled this before. And uh... yeah, no, I think it is. It's not based on any of his material, so there we go. No, right. great. <laughs> so, no, but it's, no. It, it's it's Dick esque is what I'm is what I'm told. Fair. Um, that's an absolutely nothing film. Tom Cruise in Oblivion. Yeah. Um, John Cohen has no other credit. Where did he go? What happened to him? What did Spielberg do? Whereas Scott Frank has done a bunch of stuff. Uh, he wrote Logan, Out of Sight. Um, I think he wrote The Queen's Gambit. Um, yeah, a, a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, a bunch of, like, he wrote Marley and Me. Uh, you know, just some uh, good old-fashioned movies. You know what I mean? Adam, would you like to know who's what? in the movie? I think I know who's in the movie. I know at least one of the actors that's in the movie. Can I? Can I guess? Go on, Adam. Kirk B.R. Waller. I couldn't tell you. He plays one of the pre-crime cops. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> Didn't have... But other than that, I've got no idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
we have Tommy C as Chief John Anderton. <laughs> yeah, we're fairly familiar. Yeah. Fairly familiar with the big TC. Yeah. We've got Colin Farrell as Danny Whitwer. Improbably second build. Uh, but then also, who else would you second bill in this movie, I guess? Um, yeah, it's I don't very think... much Tom Cruise in every scene going around and meeting lots of bit players, kind of, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Colin Farrell forgot he was in this movie altogether, so he turned up and I was like, huh, Colin Farrell. Yeah, and uh, yeah. always a joy, I think, personally. He's got a presence, yeah. hasn't he? And a very yeah. convincing American accent. I didn't. I remember seeing this movie when I was uh, a kid, and thinking he was American. So because I saw, I think I saw him in this first. Weirdly, well, this is his very American period where he's trying to do a lot of blockbuster movies. So he had been in Bally Kiss Angel. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and then he does like Daredevil. American Outlaws, Hearts War, Minority Report, Minority Report, and Phone Booth are in the same year. Phone Booth yeah. is kind of like his oh, big. Yeah first like starring role and then he's in stuff like the recruit and swat and you're right steve daredevil so swat daredevil and the recruit are all in the same year they're all in 2003 and then people just i guess don't really buy him as a leading man because then he goes away and works with terence malick and does like the new world and he works with michael mann and does miami vice and now he does loads of weird movies that i really like um i like the lobster like, yeah, The Lobster, yeah. Killing of a Sacred Deer, yeah. uh, Widows, he's really good in. Um, uh, after Yang, I haven't seen, but I've heard he's really good in. And there's there's a route that obviously he's in, in Bruges um, and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, interesting actor, IMO, in my IMO. We also have Samantha Morton as Agatha. Who does some acting. So much acting. Yep. I think she's great in this. Me too. Uh, because this movie has a very specific tone that I think it's going for, and I think she matches it really well. I always, like, whenever I think of Samantha Morton, I'm like, oh, yeah, I really like Samantha Morton. I think I've seen two films that she's in. <laughs> I've seen her in two things. <laughs> are, are they both from this year? Are they both? Is it Minority Report and Morvan Caller? Uh, no, I have to, obviously I've seen her in Minority Report. Outside of that, she is in uh, the very first Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them film. She plays Credence's adopted mother. Mother? What, mother. Mary Lou? Oh. She plays the mum, the one that's oh. a bit abusive towards all the little, you know, anti witch oh. children. Ah, oh, that's interesting. She is terrifying in Minority Report in certain, yeah. certain uh, scenes, which I imagine we'll get to. And also very vulnerable. Yes, it's like, but but that's the creepiness about it, which we'll get into. Yeah, there's like a childlike thing going on, right? It's a difficult yeah. needle to thread. Yeah. yeah. She also plays a, a villain in the later seasons of The Walking Dead. For anyone who's interested, who cares? Yeah. Who? Who? We don't talk about TV on here. Thank you no. very much. But at least she's still working. <laughs> this, is, this is a film podcast. Um, and then there's one other like huge actor mm. who's in this. Max von Sydow. Yeah. As Lamar Burgess. I'll let you get away with that. It's close um, enough, isn't it? Yeah, probably. I mean, he is in some incredible films. Um, he obviously, he is... Oh, help me out. Is he Swedish? I think he might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he, he worked with Ing, uh, Ing, Ingmar Bergman uh, a lot. Um, he's in The Seventh Seal, um, which... 
you guys, if you haven't seen The Seventh Seal, you'll know the famous bit from it. Is it? Is that, that's the film where a man plays chess with death, right? Yeah, on a yeah. beach. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Really famous image. That's Max von Sydow. Yeah. Um, he's also in Wild Strawberries and Winter Light. And he's in The Exorcist. Ooh, uh, of one of my favorite films of all time. He's 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 the older priest, Father Merrin, who does the the power of Christ compels you. All of that stuff. And um, of course, your one of your top ten movies of all time, Star Wars: uh, The Force Awakens. Yeah, sure. What mm-hmm. what do I? Th- someone remind me what I think of uh, The Force Awakens. Did I think it was rubbish? I think you thought it was fine. Can you genuinely not remember? Because you absolutely nothing it. Um, Did I think it was fine? I think I might have given it two stars. No, you gave it more than uh, The Last Jedi. Because I remember us being team. That was shit. No. no, Well, well, okay. I think my... Tom, I think... I I think we might agree on on certain aspects of the Last Jedi. I could yeah. I could make two statements right now about the Last Jedi, and you would agree with one of them and disagree with the other. Would you like to test that theory, please? Okay, I think the Last Jedi is a bad film. Agree or disagree? Agree. Okay. I think that The Last Jedi is the third best Star Wars film. <laughs> Agree or disagree? I'm going to have to disagree, I think. Okay, well, there you go. But now I'm, now I'm struggling to actually... Oh, no. Uh, the, no, The Force Awakens I did like less than The Last Jedi. Um, I, I've just looked it up. I gave it two okay. stars. I gave The Last Jedi two and a half. Um... And the only two that beat it for me are the original Star Wars, which I gave three stars, and The Empire Strikes Back, which I gave three and a half. Um, Not a Star Wars guy. That's fine, Adam. But there is a segue that we can very smoothly use here. Because as with Star Wars, and as Mm. with a, a, a normal Steven Spielberg movie, Minority Report's music was composed by John Williams. Ah, it's interesting Yay. that you have uh, uh, singled out the music on this one. Uh, did, did, did you think it was especially uh, noteworthy? I think it seems like a pretty standard John Williams score. Well, actually, I would say that it doesn't fit because I think he's fresh off doing um, Star Wars Episode 2, uh, Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones, of And of the clones. so the music, which actually there's only one sequence in this where you can really hear that it's John Williams, and that's in the scene where they're in like the car manufacturer factory. Yes, that's the one where I was like, oh, yes, I remember now this yeah. was scored. It goes by John very Williams. Star Warsy. Um, it and, does, yeah. And it's, it doesn't fit the tone of the film. And I, th- I think that John Williams didn't have a lot of time. He had like three weeks to, from start to finish. So he basically came up with like a couple of pieces and the rest selected classical piano and like just classical music that would therefore fit the general like clean, glossy aesthetic of the film. Right. Oh, it's interesting you think it's clean. Well... I mean, obviously, some aspects are, glo- uh, are really scummy and horrible, but I mean, like, there's a sort of uh, more like the advertising, that sort of glossy, um, it yes. sterile. It is glossy and it's, shiny. It's sterile in places, good. and yeah. it's, it's grim and grubby in, outside in the streets where the poor people live. I find the shininess to be very intense. 
uh, of this movie, and and, yeah. and 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 I think that that is down to someone else who we don't, you know, an, another role that we don't usually shout out, but I think we should shout out Janusz Kaminski, the director of photography, who has worked with Steven Spielberg since Schindler's List uh, on on a bunch of st- of, of stuff, um, and we've seen before because he was the director of photography for Jerry Maguire, um, but here is where the, uh, like they start working in their sort of kind of famous uh, pools of light kind of aesthetic like incredibly mm. bright white light well, this is um, the thing like any in a lot of interiors through any window is is the brightest light it's the it's the, the actual sun i think they put outside the window so there's so much light being shot at the camera lens just like when they go past like something and it's just shining out the window there's so many shots especially that that um the warehouse with the cool guns um and yeah then you go into that that chase it's insane like what's supposed to be outside those windows it's ridiculous but it happens so often i think even just in his apartment um and stuff yeah like that. everything white is like super white in fact all of the film yeah. was run through um bleach before they process it they did a bleach pass on it uh to give it that incredible like white uh sort of thing and what i think it is is it's it's it makes it look so washed out where there are certain parts of the movie where you could look at it and honestly like be be uh understandably mistaken and think that it was in black and white Hmm. um which i think vibes with the tone of the movie because i think they're going for like a bit of a classic film noir kind yeah. of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like a it's a it's a mystery to solve, a case yeah, to like crack. A, yeah, it's like a, a detective uh, yeah. film noir kind of story. Um, and there's also that classic film noir thing where you, you're you're basically following one detective as they question what would usually be a bunch of. Um, like suspects or whatever but in this john anderton which is tom cruise's character goes around meeting a bunch of characters and they're all super super heightened like they're Mm. all such ridiculous characters um that make a huge impact in whatever like five minutes like if you think about the weird performance that the plant lady gives um (laughs) yeah and you think that that's in the same movie as the weird performance that peter stormare gives as the eyeball doctor uh, and that's in the same uh, movie as the guy who takes off his glasses and he's got no eyes. Like they're all these like hugely like heightened film noir characters, and they've always got like a bit of a one-liner, like a really mad thing to say or yeah. a pun, <laughs> which is which is also very film noir. You're just waiting for them to go like see at the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, though, like a lot of film noir. I remember, like, at the time, even at the time, I knew it was, like, a big deal that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg were going to work together. Like, imagine. That's, like, a huge deal, right? Almost certainly the biggest movie star of the time, almost certainly the biggest director of the time, and they're, they're teaming up. Um, looking back on it, Again, like other film noirs, it's it's a it's a real it's really weird. It's a really weird, like dark movie, right? Yeah, it is a weird movie. I think this is probably a good 
point like i just wanted to talk a bit about my like past relationship with the movie because you're talking about looking back but oh, I you and i saw lot- it together well this is the thing i remember this being like mm. a really big thing for me and you like yeah. i either feel like we watched it a lot we talked about it a lot or we played the video game from the movie oh <laughs> i've got to talk about the video game later we did play yeah, the video game but we, we we went to the cinema to see this yeah and then i would have got it on yeah. dvd and we probably would have watched yeah. it a couple of times yeah yeah but i think my love for it uh the movie spoilers i love it uh comes from seeing it so young i mean absolutely drawn in by i'd never seen anything that had like twists and turns do you know what i mean right that are in yeah this? yeah and, and so the smallest twist i'm like blowed my fucking mind um but also just like <laughs> The future businessness of it all, the future bits, you know? Yeah. So I was just totally drawn in by like the world building and high concept. And I think this movie really kind of sparked my love for sci fi and like near future genre, you know, like a, a world that looks like really similar to ours, um, but with like believable future technology in a way. Um it's like a it's like a better long Black Mirror episode. It's that kind of right. concept, yes. isn't it? You know? Um, um, high concept near future. It's it's interesting because, uh, like you said, this is the first time you've seen like a twist and twist, twisty, turny sort of thing. This mm. is the first time that I had seen something that was a blockbuster that also scared me. Like was, that's that's the next thing I wanted to say. Like I remember being quite scared of this movie. Yeah, I remember being very scared of this movie. It being very very creepy. One of the like images that haunted me for ages is the. Anne Lively with the hand going across her face once she's drowned. Yep. Oh, that yep. was a big thing. That was a big yep. thing for me. Uh, that's very scary. Um, the precogs obviously freaked me out. The spiders freaked me out. The eye stuff freaked me out. It hit a very specific nerve for some reason, because we're just going to talk about films we've seen together at the cinema, Steve. Uh, but it was all around the same time. We saw Signs this year as well. Yeah. Yeah. There was a couple, there's a couple of bits in this movie that... That gave me that like literal cold shiver down my spine. Yeah, that, um, like, that like, one scene in yeah, Seinfeld. Yeah, we know the scene. We know the scene. The best behind time. scene. Um, but also another film we saw the year before this, which was a proper horror movie. Which I I, I looked up on Letterboxd uh, and I saw your review. I'm, I was surprised by this. We went to see the others. Oh yeah, a very interesting movie, and interestingly produced by Tom Cruise as well. That movie. Yeah. Um, that that scared the f- ever living fuck out of me as well. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's got another twisty turny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or one one twist. It has uh, the twist. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. at the time, it blew my fucking mind. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Tom, have you seen the others, or are we ruining it for you? I feel like I have seen it, but I don't remember it. And I did see it on Netflix recently, so maybe I'll watch it. Don't. Ruin it's it actually for me. like don't, don't look at Steve's letterbox review. Because he gave it like one and a half stars or something. Well, pathetic. Steve's a fucking idiot, isn't he? I mean, well, don't, yeah, well, yeah. But is it like Steve called it boring, right? And I yeah. would call it interesting. Yeah. So what, what Steve's calling boring was what it really means is good. It's- <laughs> when I think of that, <laughs> I think of the the colours grey and brown when I think of that movie. Yeah, it is a very muted, slow, mm. slow burn atmospheric very opposite movie into this. See, also, yeah. Steve, you have it's to realise that Adam and I have to come out to bat for Nicole Kidman after a mm. decade of, of, of watching her journey with Mr. Cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah we supporting really do. actress, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. <laughs> but I found it really interesting on this watch of Minority Report, which I haven't seen for years, by the way, so this was a real joy 
Like, because it wasn't just like, oh, I saw it last year. I'm just going to watch it again for this. It was like, oh, yes, I get to see Minority Report. Forgot about this. But I found it really interesting to discover what I like from like fu- movies about the future. I like, right. I just like all the all the world building, all the business, all the this this is how this works and why, and this is the technology we're using, and this is the law in this world, and it's just slightly different from ours. I absolutely love all that stuff. So when whenever all the exposition happens which it does for quite a bit mainly to tell colin farrell how things are things work and stuff i loved all yeah. that i was like yeah just just tell me just i could have <laughs> half an hour of them explaining how it all works and i'd love like it. you're reading the codex in the mass effect games oh, oh, like, yes. yeah excellent yes, i that. love all that stuff as well <laughs> yeah. and i think this film does a particularly good job of it i i yeah. also really like i really like near future stuff mm. stuff yeah. that is like plausible the the yeah. eye scans using to, to, so that they can use your name in adverts feels very plausible to me. Yeah. Um, what personalized adverts based on things right? That exactly. You've we're, we're like halfway yeah, there the already. Yeah. Well, actually, we? I don't think we're halfway there. I think we've actually just skipped over that point. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in two thousand and two, the logical thing would have been like, oh, we can now start to like potentially scan eyes. So adverts will scan your eye and serve it to you personally. In reality, we've just we've leapfrogged right over that to so the point that they don't like things like Facebook ads don't have to, you know, know anything about you in terms of your biometrics. They can predict your behaviour already and serve you ads according to that. So we've, and they're we've, also listening to you as well. Like the the microphone on your phone is is often yeah. listening to you and feeding data back to people. They'll be listening to this now, so I think you should be very thankful that you've got an extra listener. The government. <laughs> the government. <laughs> I wonder if they'll sign up to our Patreon. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> to monitor uh, behind that paywall. <laughs> um, Spielberg like um, hired teams of scientists to come in for a series of meetings where they would just talk to each other and predict the future. So this is as close as a, a bunch of actual scientists and technology people got to actually predicting what the future would look like. I assume um, you don't mean pre-crime, it's all the other bits and pieces because yes, that was in the yes, 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 the, the bits yeah. of, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the mm. pre-crime thing, mm. uh, uh, yeah, the scientists didn't get together in a room and think, well, maybe three they all just children will be born. <laughs> <laughs> After three, they went, right, we're all going to say it. one, two, three, three pre-crime. children will be born. <laughs> <Three>. <laughs> <laughs> 12 Whoa, people in a room no. <laughs> <laughs> um why do you think like so so this movie they started doing it in 1997 and it got it got delayed by the ongoing difficulties with eyes wide shut and stanley kubrick it's weird that they're both delayed by stanley kubrick stuff because tom cruise's delay is the knock-on effect of Eyes Wide Shut on Mission Impossible 2, which he'd already committed to producing. And then the delay for Spielberg is that he's taking over from Stanley Kubrick on AI when he died. Um, And then this comes out in in 2002. I think this would look like and feel like a very different movie in 1997. And I think the reason that it comes out so dark is that for both of them, this is their first post 9-11 movie um Mm. which of course you're in that era now aren't you yeah yeah, it it does add a tinge spielberg often quite a reactive filmmaker and this whole next period of his career is is quite 
dark and like I don't think this is this is his nine eleven movie. I think War of the Worlds is his nine eleven movie. Um, you know, with the images of of all of you know clothes floating in the air and um, yeah. people being turned to dust and you know explosions on on home soil and war and stuff. You know, that is definitely his his post nine eleven movie. But it, it's it's difficult to imagine a world in which that didn't have an effect on the production of this. And I think that's why it comes out so so weird and the other thing that's weird about it is that it was really hotly anticipated because not just because it was a collaboration but because there was this like huge surge of interest in big escapist blockbusters Mm. because people just wanted to get away from what was actually happening you know um this is the era that kind of sets us off on the path where we end up with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, you know? Similar. Like, Similar yeah, movies. Yeah, a lot of yeah. hand business, isn't there? A lot of waving hands. Yeah. Little, stuff yeah. on hands. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, that, that sort of, yeah. the, the way that the fun escapist blockbuster takes over, in the same way that Spielberg you know set it off the last time with jaws uh you know um uh after uh the what well, during and after the um the vietnam war which leads on to star wars you know which then leads on to these huge 80s blockbusters then things get a lot more interesting for american cinema in the 90s when you get like tarantino and paul thomas anderson sort of coming through you get what's called like um uh, there's it's not new hollywood because that's the 70s um and then blockbuster filming kind of ruined it uh but you get like a new new hollywood in the 90s and i forget what it's called um wes anderson as well came up in that um and then something horrible happens in the world and we're back to big blockbuster filmmaking but this feels a lot this feels much different to a lot of big blockbusters i think am i wrong am i wrong about that am i do- giving it too much credit maybe no, it doesn't feel like a conventional blockbuster, I don't think. I f- it feels, I think the word that you've used quite a bit, I agree with, and it just feels weird. Not mm. judgment on quality, it's just in terms of tone. Because it's kind of You're... silly, but also bleak. Bleak, and yeah, yeah and there are funny bits. Uh, which, yeah, w- and, and most of the funny bits are like classic Spielberg bits, I think. Like uh, there's like slapstick in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The bit, the bit where um, the the jetpack is flying around the room and it cooks the burgers. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. excellent. There's no need for that shot. That's but like was three, that's like that Three shot. Stooges level stuff. Mark yeah, Brothers yeah, stuff, yeah. you know. Um, but it's excellent. I yeah, I I, lo- I love that stuff. Uh, the, the other thing that makes it, I think, appear like dark and weird, and I hadn't realized it until this watch really. Tom Cruise is accessing something that I don't think we've seen so far, Tom. This, this is a, a different kind of performance for him, I would say. What do you reckon? Um, I don't know if I'd agree. I mean, you might have some a take on this that I haven't considered. But to me, it kind of felt like he was channeling Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible 1. I get a bit of that. Do you mean the kind of really... Uh, panicky, concerned cruise. Yeah, panicky, paranoid cruise. But yeah. But also, he's he's shaved his hair quite short, having had quite floppy hair. 
both yeah. times. And so maybe that's the vibe that I'm picking maybe up. Maybe that... Yeah, maybe that's what you're shaves it up. completely, Tom. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, the, the, the thing I noticed was that, yes, that, that panicky, confused, sort of like, I'm on the run or I'm against the wall kind of performance is there. But whenever he's played dark characters before... And I think Born on the Fourth of July is a bit of a dark character. Magnolia is a bit of a dark character. Um, those are very big performances, quite outlandish performances in some ways, like larger than life performances. And this is a very quiet, dark. I'm going to use the word again: haunted performance. Um. That I I don't I can't think of another performance where he's this quietly dark like there's there's he's no there's no humor to him at all in in the way that there is in no. Mission Impossible I don't think he mm. is very much grieving yeah absolutely we haven't had a grieving yeah. cruise so far I don't think no and and even the darker moments of Vanilla Sky he's so big in that movie you know he's he's doing like like su- such such big choices and he's really like small in this movie he's like locked down he's like locked into something i genuinely think this is a this is an interesting performance and i do think i think it's a very very good performance as well um there are some scenes in this movie that are like honestly i think some of the best acting we've seen from from tom cruise uh so far if if you compare like him crying in magnolia like like we said like Yes, an incredible performance. He's like vibrating from from anger and and uh, you know crying and being being that upset. That is still quite a large performance compared to the crying, kind of holding back tears, absolutely devastated performance he gives when he meets the murderer of his son. You know, just about to say that it's such a there is just um, certain facial like changes very subtle the way the way that that turns and how and how you you feel exactly what he's feeling in that moment yeah but he doesn't have to be screaming and shouting at this guy exactly uh, yeah that that one scene i like it, i was like yeah god he's, he's doing some acting here this is great there, um, there's another one fact, where there's a sudden facial change and i'll, I'll point out when we get to it that i, that I think is really yeah, really cool. effective and he's doing some really good work here i actually had a specific question for you steve um does this I mean this might be dark territory, okay? Does this film for you hit different now that you are a mm-hmm. father? Let me just find the note. Uh, that I wrote in my in my notes. Uh this film hits different now I'm a father. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I thought it I, might. I've uh, I've got yeah, I mean just straight away I'm I'm far more interested than I was in a kid in John's backstory and trauma. It's not the same. Of course, <laughs> my kid is alive and well. But, yes, um, yeah. But, but, but I mean... The, like, at the beginning, when he's watching the videos, that kid is about the same age as, as mine. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a very different... And uh, I, I get emotional about any father and son stuff in movies, as you know. Um, so instantly I'm like, huh, well, I didn't expect to feel these things right, in this I can, movie about like, the future. It, it it makes me feel I'm not a father. It make like the swimming pool scene makes me feel really mm-hmm. panicky. Oh um, god! I like genuinely I haven't felt that from a movie like that I can think of when he when he pops up and the kid's gone. I felt that, and instantly I do obviously go straight to my own kid and imagine that 
But um, yeah, nuts. You've ru- you run into your kid's bedroom and imagine that. Yes, yeah, he does. He stares sure at him he while he imagines it. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> I always think about Tom Cruise when I think about my son. Yeah, me too. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, but yeah. the thing is, is I'm always thinking about Tom Cruise. The other thing is, as well, is that Tom Cruise is my father. So there's a whole yeah, there's that whole yeah. thing with sons and Tom Cruise. And uh-huh. uh, you also went missing when you were six years old, didn't you? I'm and now I'm grown up. Now I'm yeah, and up. and yeah. Tom Cruise had to find you with the help mm. of a psychic woman. Anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Tom, had you seen this before? I have. Uh, so I watched it um, the, the last time, uh, almost two years to the day that I rewatched it for this podcast. Interesting. Uh, like I had that in his calendar. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think before that, I hadn't seen it since, you know, relatively not long after it came out. I don't think I saw it in the cinema, but I must have seen it at home or something. Um, yeah. I don't remember being scared by it, so maybe I saw it later than you guys did. Were you scared by it this time? Oh, yeah, this, this time I, I shat myself in fear. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a reasonable, it's a reasonable reaction to the movie. Yeah. Um, we're, we are potentially an hour into the podcast and we haven't actually started talking about the movie, uh, which is Bef- an insane we- place to be. <laughs> Before we do start talking about the movies, I do have a list of uh, pre-crimes that Steve's going to commit. What? <laughs> <laughs> you what? Yeah, you do, yeah. You're going to what? I've just got a short list. Don't worry. Uh, so your pre-crimes, Steve, are endangerment of a red squirrel, pocketing <laughs> incorrect change, murder by magnets, vacuuming after 1pm on a Sunday, sticking a postage stamp to an envelope upside down, and being a great dad. That's a crime, is it? <laughs> it's criminally good dad. Yeah, yeah crime. criminally uh, good dad. I just want to point out that I haven't done those crimes, so you can't arrest me. Well, not yet. Well, this is the interesting thing about the movie, guys. No, There's some interesting why don't you roll a ball on the table and make me catch will, it and say I something will. cool? Yeah, everyone's, everyone's always saying something cool in this movie. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the movie, because the film opens with, like, what I forgot was some pretty graphic imagery of a murder taking place. <laughs> like yeah. uh, it, those yeah. short, creepy fragments that look like the uh, opening credits to Seven. Um, yes. And then we see. But it also and, really does look like a dream, doesn't it? It does. Like, it looks yeah, yeah, like yeah. you'd imagine a dream when you remember it in fragments. Yeah. Um, and then we see an eye, which we pull out from, and it's a pale person who goes, Murder. <laughs> <laughs> and then she disappears underwater uh, and then we see two balls being carved and into it is carved the the names of some victims it's a weird opening to a movie uh i loved it i i think that the first 20 or so minutes of this movie is some incredibly nifty filmmaking <laughs> it's so um, cool everything is so neat and everything that they set up is eventually paid off, even though you don't realise that they're setting things up. And it's all so dynamic, and it's just some incredible world building. And it's the thing that Spielberg is like best at. Like that thing I said about not giving you everything immediately. You are dropped right in the middle of something. You see these images, and then Tom Cruise walks into a room, and the first scene of him is him and his team uploading those images that you've seen to a large glass screen and then manipulating him uh manipulating them with with the with the cool hand things 
it's impossible to describe for a podcast i reckon one of you have a go sure it's like uh the touch controls you use on your phone today but on a big screen right well it's not though is it because because he's not touching the screen well there's some he's doing gestures yeah yeah when he zooms in he's kind of go oh it's so cool it's like the xbox connect it's, oh yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're talking about just uh, the balls. That is the most satisfying part of the movie. Yeah, the, well, very, the balls. when you see and the laser cut the balls, but also the big marble run that they go down. Yeah, no need. Yeah, I love <laughs> no it. No need. I thought that every time. It's like, why is that a big spiral? <laughs> yeah, because the guy designed it went, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that you've discovered that three people can predict murders before they happen, and then you go, okay, but how do we translate this into a device that the police can use? Carve some wooden balls, I imagine. Yeah. Marble run. Yeah. <laughs> wooden balls in a marble run? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously. You're right. Make sure you, you take the, the time screen? to varnish nope. the balls. Don't uh, don't yeah. let them come out, because someone might get a splinter. Um <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out those images that he's manipulating with the very cool hand thing, that's probably one of the most famous bits of the movie is him doing all that stuff with his hands. Yeah. It turns out that they are images of the future generated by precognitives who are the three people that we see in a pool in a separate room. And this is a red ball, uh, a so-called crime of passion. And their job is to get there before the murder takes place. The whole physicality of the investigation the stuff he's doing with the hands is great it's kinetic filmmaking it's all backed by classical music so it looks like he's uh like conducting something yeah um and yeah. tom cruise we know is, is a great physical actor so obviously he would have been doing all of this stuff without the images actually there um but also spielberg's understanding of what an audience needs in order to understand geography and storytelling is like unmatched. I, I, I look. Like, everyone, you know, it's not a hot take that Steven Spielberg's a good film director, right? <laughs> it's it's Steven Spielberg, but I genuinely think that he gets left out of the conversation because he's such an obvious pick. Um, on like our previous podcast, we've talked about you know like a Design for Life by the Manchester Preachers. You just yeah, like it's almost it's almost not talking about how good it is because it's, yeah you don't it's consider it their best song because it's obviously just like their best song so you a just bit like saying, talk about I like else. the Beatles yeah exactly it's like, I, like yeah of course you, yeah he's he's one of the best filmmakers ever I think Steven Spielberg and I do think he gets left out of the conversation a little bit um, there's there's a great uh, couple of edits in this where Tom Cruise's first big close up is him saying Howard Marks where are you um, and then we cut to where Howard Marks is, who is the suspect, and we're introduced to his wife and his kid, and they're all getting ready in the morning. And then the wife tells her kid, because he's got this big project coming up, right? And he like the kid needs to get to school. And she tells the kid, you're running out of time. And after we hear that, we cut back to the ticking clock of the investigation that Tom Cruise is doing in the room. It's two very clever cuts, that kind of like propel the audience through the visual storytelling because he knows that you can't just, you know, look at the screen and tell someone what's going on. You have to do it visually as well. Um, love it. I love shit like that. There's another one with That's a barrel later cool. on. Uh, I don't know if you know what. Yeah, I don't, like the barrel thing is... Uh, 
crazy. Um, all I can think of is that scene in the Hobbit movie with all the dwarves. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> yeah that's I what I'm talking get... about. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, it was surprising it was in this movie. <laughs> um, so, so he's like investigating these images, and we're watching the suspect and the victims kind of go about their lives because, of course, this murder that we've seen hasn't happened yet. And while he's scrubbing through all the images, he's also having to deal with the arrival of Danny Whitwer, which is Colin Farrell, who is a Justice Department official who has been sent to audit the pre-crime system <laughs> before yeah. a congressional the twink from vote. The feds. Yes, I love, I love that. I love that he calls him <laughs> the twink from the feds, and then he introduces himself as the twink from the feds. Yeah, yeah, because uh, he yeah. heard it. It's so good. Um, and he kind of works as our audience surrogate. So while Tom Cruise is working one of his team explains to Colin Farrell, this is what's going on, this is how it works. And it's basically that the three precogs predict a murder, and it can only be murder that they predict, which is a change from the book, because in the book it's all crime. Um, They predict a murder, and then you investigate the images, and you try and arrest the the murderer before the murder has even taken place. Um. That's kind I of love it. About, That's all people need to know, yeah. right? What I love about it, they even go down to sort of detail of how it's a crime of passion, so they haven't got very long. Otherwise, and nobody even bothers um, doing uh, planning a murder anymore because they'll just get caught. So they just don't. It doesn't even happen. So after a while of the system being in place, they didn't, they, a lot of people that would have murdered just don't bother. But crime of passions, they don't know it's going to happen, so they only get a very short amount of time. Little details like that is very cool. Yeah. yeah. It's it uh, yeah it's it's great it's it's a really well plotted uh, movie. Um, John Anderton, that's Tom Cruise's character. John uh, narrows down the location and joins a number of pre-crime officers going to the location. They leave Whitworth back at the headquarters, and they do eventually stop the suspect. It's a very tense sequence, I have to say. Um, we do get a Tom Cruise run. Running oh, right into that building. Running. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, just before the the run, we get him going, We're coming up to the future. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> so stupid. And and yet I'm so in. Yeah, it's so good. But like <laughs> And this yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but proper, proper run, isn't it? Yeah. It is a proper run. It's one of the first proper runs, actually, because the all, all of the ones in Mission Possible Two are in slow motion. Um <laughs> Yeah. They they do catch him. He's uh, Howard Marks is identified by an iris scan, which is you know something else they're setting up that you can scan people's eyes. And then he's haloed, which is they put something on his head that puts him in a dreamlike state. Um, uh, yeah, and that's that. And and it's interesting that the first sort of twenty minutes, that whole sequence has absolutely nothing to do with the plot of the movie. It is just there to set up all of the rules and show yeah. you how the pre-crime system works and then Spielberg does another little thing uh which is um uh he puts on the uh the uh the advert for pre-crime like he does that thing yeah. where he's like well if you haven't understood yeah, yeah. the last 20 minutes yeah here's, yeah here's here's just what it is in the form of an advert um I don't know yeah. uh I love just advertisement in in future movies as well just all that big and blazing video projected on the underside of a bridge in this case which is insane but um <laughs> I, I love i love that kind of, it's like it's all in blade runner as well isn't it the gigantic kind of the um, huge advert. screens just, yeah yeah yeah, love yeah. It. yeah um i always think like 
What an absolute nightmare to live near that. Like, just have that shining through your window all the time. It'd be insane. Yeah. Uh, it's a little, yeah, there you go. Um. <laughs> I bet if you're rich, though, you don't get it against your building. Like, I bet Tom Cruise's apartment doesn't have a big advert. It's plastered against its walls. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, although it wouldn't shine inwards. I imagine there's technology that makes it only shine outwards. Mm. Uh, yeah. um, oh, the other thing that they set up uh, is, is of course, that... Um, after the suspect, after Howard Marks has been arrested, the murder then reappears on the displays back at headquarters, Ooh, yeah. which Whitwer yes. sees and then goes, well, I thought that murder had, that didn't happen. And they explain that, oh, sometimes after a crime has been stopped, that the, the precogs have echo images pass through their minds and the technician is trained to recognise those as what they're, they're called echoes and then he, they just delete them from the system. Breadcrumbs. Yeah, like all this stuff, loads of stuff that's in the in in the first twenty minutes is then paid off later. Um, that evening, Anderton goes for a run, uh, which is where all the big screens and stuff are, and it, he he does a drug deal. He like a very dark character. He is entirely addicted to uh, neuroin, I think it's called, like new heroin. Um, oh, oh, yeah, okay. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what? that makes sense now. Yeah, what did you, what, heroin, what did you isn't think it? it was? Yeah. Well, no, I just didn't think that's quite clever. Uh, I doesn't he say like I want some clarity? Is yeah, I just thought. Yeah, of it it's as, like a the it's like code. Clarity. No, yeah. that's like a code New, word. Oh, I'm looking for some clarity. You know, mm. but um, I mean drugs. <laughs> that's how I do that deal. Uh, what a ridiculous character! Uh, the guy who sells him the drugs, who yeah. recognise him as the chief of police, even though he's completely blind, and then says, uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And as he does it, he takes off his sunglasses, and he has no eyes at all. Yes, yeah, so he, uh, he has no eyes, but and CGI that is, looks like it's been taken from The Mummy. Yeah, uh, not, not great, re- but... No, but great, a creepy but cool, image, I remember. Creepy image, yeah. And that freaked me out as a kid, but I also remember me and you thinking that was cool. Oh, it's um, well cool. I still yeah. think it's cool. Uh, I don't know why it, it's in the it, movie, but no. well, <laughs> I do think it's cool. No, I can, uh, I'm going to bring this up now because we've mentioned one of them. There is a lot of eye stuff in this movie, like a load that I didn't yeah. even consider me. There's there's the bit at the very beginning. I'm blind without my glasses. You see a kid cutting eyes out of a mask. You have got the blind yeah. man, the one-eyed man is king. Can you see? They swap their eyes. Um, yeah, and then there's like something the, the that has a... when he's talking to Max von Sydow. Like Sido, who is Sido. that? He says the eyes. <coughs> The eyes of the nation are on you right now. It's like he's almost winking, That's but I don't know what. Why that is interesting? Well, because the, the, there's got to the be something there. The film is all about vision, whether that is like oh, in God, your mind yes. or like yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. The mind's um, eye. The 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 other thing that has just occurred to me is that he is a drug dealer living on the street, and because of the economy in Minority Report, he probably sold his eyes. Yeah. Cool. cool. Great. Um, very, oh God, yeah. When he gets the when he gets the 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 drugs, he goes home and he watches home movies of his son. Um, I'm I, oh, I just got a weird chill. The bit where he's talking about like the the bit where he tells his son that he loves him, and you don't know that his mm-hmm. son is is like missing or dead at this point. You just assume that oh, his marriage broke up or whatever. Um, yeah. 
but he's teaching him how to run and he's one day going to run as fast as his dad, which is absolutely not true because nobody runs as fast as Tom Cruise. Well, so, I've, written, yeah. I've written here, I bet we Plot all hole. have the same note of the kid wanting <laughs> yeah. to be as fast as Cruise and nobody yeah. can be as fast <laughs> okay, as Cruise. Yeah, <laughs> That's the first plot hole. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then and then and then he takes a huge hit of of the of the heroin and watches a video of his wife which is kind of like a classic like what are you doing put the camera down and come to yeah, bed yeah, kind of video yeah, yeah. but it kind of works here yeah. like it, it's it's a technology where they are projected into a physical space right so it's like he stood opposite his wife um, yeah it's very cool but then you have that really great shot where it pans around you see the side of the hologram showing off how like fake it is and it's yeah. really creepy and then it goes around the back and you see it in reverse but it's yeah. like it's this really like almost like this nice moment, and then it it reveals this kind of uh, sterile fake technologyness of it all. Um, and then it and really then cool it like the and 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 Tom Cruise's character is so into it. He's like smiling because he's so high. He must be confusing mm-hmm. it with uh, with reality, and like he's back with yeah. his wife. And then the recording ends, and it's just end of file is right in his face. Yeah. And the way Tom Cruise's face just changes then. Mm-hmm. And he's suddenly taken back to reality, and instantly becomes confused and sad. Uh, yeah. Great acting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This this scene in general, when he gets back to his apartment, is just great in in uh, for for all of the the acting of it, but also just the technology. So overhead, future drugs, future drugs. Yeah, animated cereal box. I want to know the technology behind the animated just... cereal box. Yeah, I don't. That would be so annoying. It's magic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's magic. But I love how. Like, <laughs> but, but you, yeah, but you understand that he he smacks the cereal box down. So you like they don't tell you this, but you understand that that would stop the animation. You know that's so how it turns it. off. It like registers that it's being put down. Yeah, and it doesn't work. Great. Yeah, technology you don't have. And you don't understand, but you still understand when it's not working properly. Yeah, it's great. great. Yeah, it's a great little moment. Yeah. Um, and then the next morning, the official tour that Whitwer is doing of the pre-crime headquarters begins. And that's when they start getting into the big potential questions about the ethics of the pre-cogs. Um, they do the whole thing about destiny, right? They explain that the system mm-hmm. is designed in a way to be practically foolproof. Because it's not... They don't see intended murders. They don't see the intention to murder... They see the actual future, right? Mm-hmm. They see what the killer will do, not what they intend to do. So, because there's that grey area where they're arresting somebody for murder that they haven't committed. Yeah. Because they're stopping them before the murder takes place. And then they use that great visual metaphor of the ball where he rolls mm. the ball across the table, Colin Farrell catches it, and he's like, why did you catch the ball? Because it would have fallen, uh, but it didn't fall. How, how do you know it would have fallen? It's because you just know. Um, and then they go into the thing that they call the temple, which is the precog's little chamber. They're kept like semi-conscious in a pool of fluid, a bit like Tom Ashford. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, like he's, Whitwer is like convinced that the program is not flawless and that the the floor is probably human. Um, another very scary bit coming up. I remember this absolutely making me shit myself in the cinema, which is that uh, Tom Cruise is the only one left in the room, and he's like, he's curious, so he kind of like snaps his fingers over Agatha, one of the mm-hmm. precogs, and it's 
it's kind of like the bit in Jaws, actually. The first time you see the shark is really, really casual and your attention is elsewhere because um, the character in Jaws turns to the turns towards the camera and says, why don't you try and chum some of this shit? And then the, the shark appears behind him and it's it works as a jump scare. For this one, like Tom Cruise, again, turns towards camera and starts going, hey, Wally which means your attention is on him and then suddenly the precog jumps out of the water and like grabs him around the neck. Yeah. And you exactly proper jump coming as well. Yeah, it really was. And I was like, oh, I know she grabs him at this point and I go, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, yeah. really, really <laughs> See, I, um, I knew it was going to happen, but Jenny almost did a backflip off the sofa. <laughs> cool. Like, <laughs> like a real, wow. like a radical jump. Yeah, yeah rad. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so rad. <laughs> there is a really interesting bit before before the... That part, though, um, they obviously set up this this thing about yes, they start talking about the ethics of it, and they, but then you see it, there's a sudden switch in the scene where C- Colin Farrell's character is is at the beginning sort of seen as this asshole interferer. Yeah, everything he says has a point, and then Tom Cruise says it's better that you don't think of them as human, and then you're like, oh god, like mm-hmm. actually, th- this is bad. This is a bad thing, um, and it's interesting that it's that early on. Um, because Tom Cruise is doing some cool sci-fi stuff. He's, he's getting this guy just just before he's about to stab his wife, and he's like, yeah, okay, cool, yeah, they're doing good. And then you have that scene, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. hold on a minute. Yeah, there's then like you a kind human of... cost to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting cool. that like Colin Farrell is presented like, at this point, the villain. Yeah, and, yeah. And yet everything he says is like morally and philosophically correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The the, the technicalities of of pre crime, I suppose. Like, it. I I get the point that the yeah, like you are stopping something that is definitely going to happen. There's like no question about it. I think that the the whole like determinism versus um, freedom of 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 will. Um, mm sort of sort of stuff that's uh, that's going on in minority report kind of hinges around the idea that you can only change your future if you know what it's going to be um mm. and there are only two characters in this movie who know what their future is going to be and they both make a choice to well one makes a choice to change it and one it's it's less clear i suppose um uh but yeah, it's only if you know your future that you can change it. So, I don't know. Would uh, you know? Is there a better intervention than just instantly arresting and then giving them a fucking lobotomy? Who knows? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who knows? We'll never know. <laughs> There's also lots of interesting stuff they talk about where, like, um, with like the religion aspect of it and the way that people talk about the precogs in in public, but also how some of the police see them see themselves more as clergy than than, than cops. Mm. And Whitwer is a very religious character. He keeps kissing his um, Catholic um, prayer chain, right? Um, and he he says the precogs are much more than human. When Tom Cruise says that the, it's better if you don't think of them as human, he says no, they're much more mm. than that. And they they call that room the temple as well. Uh, there's lots of really interesting little themes and stuff digging in that. But when when he when she does uh, leap out of the water to grab Tom Cruise around the neck, she then on the screen projects from her mind images of a woman being drowned um, by a masked assailant, uh, basically. And that sort of piques Anderton's interest. And he goes down to uh, 
the containment level where all of the uh, haloed people are kept. And he talks to the um, the supervisor there, Gideon, who is playing an organ. <laughs> it's like yes. this really yeah, like weird so baroque, yeah, like organ sort of thing. And he's a weird character as well, uh, played by yeah. uh, is it John Turturro? Is that his name? Or it's Tim Blake Nelson. Thank you very much. I knew they were both in uh, Oh Brother, Where Are Thou? (laughs) I always get those two uh, um, confused. Uh, So heightened. Um, And then they look for the assailant of the drowning case that Agatha just uh, showed on on, on the screens. And he's classified as a John Doe because it's... He swapped his eyes out for someone else's, so they're setting that up as well. That that this that that technology exists in this universe, um, and it fools the identification sensors. And there's also information missing from the case, namely Agatha's pre-visualization of the murder, and information on where the would-be victim actually is. So Anne Lively is is actually also, uh, well. We, we don't know what's happened to her, basically, because there's no information on her, and usually there would be information on her. The only information that they have is that she was a an, uh, a neuroin addict, she was a single mother, um, and there is like a slight indication that she went to rehab at some point. So at this point in the movie, I am so invested in this mystery being set up. I'm like yeah. I'm like leaning forward in my seat. It's so good. That that scene also has just one of the coolest sci-fi shots where all the prisoners rise up and all the white light. Yeah. It's horrifying. so cool. <laughs> but yeah, I I am so so invested. Um in that case, but, how yeah. did you feel about the fact that that's not even the main thrust of the mystery? That's sort of a secondary yeah. mystery, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it, it it's the it's the mystery that's kind of sort of rushed at the very end, I think, if I remember right. I can't remember in my notes here. But, um, yeah, but, like, that that's what you think it's going to be. It's, like, it's going to be, I was going to say Tom Ashford then. It's going to be Tom Cruise. Um, mm. I am in the so film, though. Trying, yeah, he's oh, in the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. On, one of, on one of the male precogs. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> the slippery fish that's in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Credited as Splashford. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, yeah, you're you're pulled in as like he's going to investigate this um this mystery. However, uh, on the mm-hmm. in the next scene when he's uh, alerted to another case that's come in, another premeditated murder that is due to take place in thirty six hours, he's told that the victim has already been identified as Leo Crow, but they still don't know who the perpetrator is, and so we get the great hands and the the manipulation of the data and tom cruise doing his physical hand stuff and as he reviews the information who does it turn out that the murderer is going to be barney the dinosaur no i what what cut of this movie did you watch uh i think within the barney the dinosaur edit yeah some of steve's son's uh <laughs> yeah. Material managed to get uh, swapped into the tape. Yeah, this he changed the channel at this point. <laughs> it's Tom, it's only bloody Tom Cruise. It's only yeah. Johnson, isn't it? He's investigating his own crime. Um, he is going to kill Leo Crow in thirty six hours, according to the uh, the precogs. But of course, his initial reaction is like, "Well, no, I'm not. That must be yeah. a lie." I think he assumes that he's being set up. Um, and he tries to get out of the building uh, before anybody else finds out. Uh, there's that great bit where he, because on his way out, he bumps into Whitworth in the elevator, mm-hmm. um, who 
thinks Whitworth thinks he's got Anderton on drug use because he's been like investigating his apartment. So Tom Cruise pulls a gun on him, and Colin Farrell absolutely does not care because murder doesn't exist. Like yeah, they, they would have already, yeah, exactly. He he would already know if 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 uh, if Anderton was going to shoot him because it would have been predicted. So there's no danger here. So he's still really cocky, and then he hears the alarm go off. Which is that somebody else he, has has realised that uh, that Anderton is 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 going to be the the murderer, and his face just like drops. <laughs> He's just like, oh, yeah, am so I just good. about to yeah. die? <laughs> like, oh, shit. <laughs> All of that bravado disappears in a second, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and then he so he escapes. He he goes he goes into the maglev. Another like probably the bit that is the most wrong of all the future technology that we see, which is this huge structure with all the self-driving cars that run on like a vertical road and stuff. Absolutely yeah. insane, but looks very cool. Um, which was kind of set up in Back to the Future Two, right? That's in the background of a shot. That exact transport. Is it? You know Are you that? saying that they're yeah, in the yeah. same cinematic universe, Steve? Kinda. Like there's a there's um there's a shot in Back to the Future Two. It's right in the background, and it has the same transportation system. Um, right off. Back the to distance. the Future, obviously produced by uh, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Uh-huh. That is interesting. Hmm. Um, he calls Burgess who he's been kind of keeping up to date on this and Lively Case, but he's kind of brushed it away, kind of talks about other stuff. Um, but in the maglev, he tells him, like, what's happening, what's going on, and that it must be a setup that Wit was set him up or something's wrong, and would Hinneman know what is wrong with these pre-visualizations? Um, Hinneman being the, the person who, alongside Burgess, kind of invented this notion of of pre-crime and is more kind of on the the pre-cog side of it and Lamar Burgess is more on like the the admin side of it, I suppose, the day-to-day running of the stuff. Um, Anyway, he escapes, you know, like the the maglev starts taking him back to the office because they've got control of his car and he escapes by jumping on lots of stuff um, and it's cool uh and tense <laughs> and there's that little joke with the yoga thing which is like a i nice loved that so much it's so thing. slapstick yeah 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 and the way she um, waddles over to him Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um and then he tries does he, he tries to get on a train right but the iris scans pick him up um so they they yeah, run to get him at the next stop there's an interesting part on the train, and in, in the newspaper, obviously, it changes to his face on there, right? But yeah. There's a little headline underneath that says "Mechanical Nano Device Triumph," um, setting up the spiders for later as well. Just a little nice little detail there, um, which are, I, I think don't really think cool. that's what it is. No, that, that, what do you think no, that would na- be? nanobots is like blood level. It's like yeah, they're very device. very small. But um, but also the spiders they've had for years and years and years, I think, because they're referenced later on. No click, yeah, click, and click, also click, the way that spiders. I suppose, yeah, and the way that people react to them as well. I suppose They're maybe like, oh, tomorrow I'll come by the cottage. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> some of the some of the way he delivers Max von Sydow delivers the lines in this movie. I just uh, they're like ASMR to me. The way he goes click <laughs> click of little spiders, um, and, and the way he goes, I'll come by the cottage is is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, they they eventually <laughs> track him down, and 
like uh, there's an incredible escape scene uh, where Tom Cruise is beating up a bunch of people on jetpacks. Uh, I mean, the jetpacks who also have six so sticks. Lame. Oh, the uh, six sticks cool. are cool. The six who sticks are great. Six sticks. Six well, sticks. It's, just it's, for the name. <laughs> it's from one of these uh, like seminars that Steven Spielberg had a load of scientists go to they reckon the technology would be possible that like you prod someone's throat and it makes them vomit and i guess that would incapacitate someone pretty heavily like yeah it's a non-lethal intervention but but if i knew that this was an existing weapon and someone came at me with a six stick where do you think i'm gonna vomit (laughs) in their fucking face that's pretty much what happens isn't it more or less um um the jetpacks aren't cool. I mean, I, I love it, but there's a scene where they're just sort of floating in and it looks like that scene in uh, Harry Potter where they have the, the port key and uh, what's his name? Cedric Diggory is just kind of floating in clearly on wires really lamely yes. towards him, like really slow. It just looks yes, like... Yes, they, 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 they do are remind obviously me, on wires, yeah. Yeah, they do yeah. remind me a little bit of like uh, um, Captain Scarlet. Yeah, kind of animation <laughs> yeah. of just sort of floating in, like oh hello, little puppets. Yeah. <laughs> I I like that whole sequence. Like like Spielberg's really good at um at sequences uh like that. I'm never confused about what's going on. I also yeah. like sequences where our hero is trying to escape from people he knows and is trying not to kill anybody. Yeah. So, like the bit, bit where he yeah. makes sure that a guy has his grip before he yeah. gets rid of his jetpack. Like, are you okay? Have you got this? And then yeah. he moves on his way. It's great. I, I, yeah. I love, I love stuff like that. It makes it so much more. Um, there's so much more stakes there. It makes it so much more real and believable to me, uh, rather than just you know, relentlessly decking a room full of people. Yeah. Um, but also, they went up a garbage chute. Yep. Yeah. The, up the garbage chute is cool. Yeah. How um, they don't burn Cruz's legs off like melt them off from the, <laughs> yeah. from the his jet. hand it is basically matter. in the flame no, it doesn't matter. don't worry about it don't worry about it doesn't matter don't worry. going up through the family's dinner time is also great <gasps> where they, the the big table bump obviously cooking the burgers nice little visual joke um he manages to escape he manages to escape from them but then runs into Whitwer uh who chases him into uh like a car assembly plant uh, and we're introduced to the concussive gun. Very cool. Oh, man. The wibbly, wibbly gun. So the wibbly, the wibbly gun is excellent. Spinning it around. Well, the thing, way the, thing I, the, <laughs> the thing I love about the way it reloads is that the way it reloads isn't cool until Tom Cruise does it. Oh, yeah. Like, they they, they <laughs> just like slowly spin it around. And then when Tom Cruise gets on it, he's wanging it around and reloading yeah. it with one hand and stuff. And it's great. Cool. This is the barrel bit because Tom Tom Cruise is hiding behind some barrels, and it's going to be that classic thing where you don't see him beat someone up, but then you see like the gun slide to the floor. But Spielberg knows that you the the, the audience, in order to be remain invested with the kinetic energy of the scene, needs something to move and something for the camera to follow. So the way that he communicates that they're having a fight is one of the barrels gets knocked closer and closer to the edge. And when it falls, the camera follows the barrel falling, which means the camera is already on the floor when the gun uh, slides along the floor into shot. We watch Tom Cruise pick it up and then the camera pans up as, as the gun moves up into his hand and he runs away. Incredible bit of filmmaking. Um, Great. Excellent. Also very funny. I mean, he has a fight with uh, Whitwer on top of the thing. 
and they end up in a car that's being built. It's very funny that he it looks like he dies, but actually mm-hmm. he is built inside of a car that's Into just ready to go. Just drives it off. He just drives it straight <laughs> some- off the production <laughs> line. <laughs> There's something very satisfying about how he's made this world feel alive and functional, though. So, like, you see the transport system, you're introduced to that, you're introduced to what the cars are like, and then you see adverts. You see an advert for this Lexus. For the Lexus, And then you yeah, see yeah. this Lexus being built, and then you see him driving this car. All these things you see go along just just help build that world and you're like yeah fine i get i get all the business that's happening it's so good um i just thought that was great but the lexus he goes into um that was lexus made this specific lexus made this it, specifically it's like a concept for this car, movie right, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah now obviously they obviously made that for this but um when they have cars and things like this even normal cars in movies do you know they have this frame car have you heard about this and they just cgi cars in so there's a scene at the end of avengers assemble i think it is where they've got loki in change at the very end um and they're gonna and tony gets into this like super orange car so this ridiculous car that car isn't real it's literally like a frame he gets in and it's cgi and that i think that happens in way more movies and it's quite a famous frame of a car that they use to CGI on other cars for absolutely no reason apart from, I guess, it's cheaper than hiring that kind of car. Insane. Uh, but I just thought that this is cool because they just had this car that they built for That's this one tiny scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It drives cool. from one yeah. place to another and that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's Spielberg, though. Like, he has so much money. I think he could walk up, walk up to someone and go, like, I could realistically get you to kill your dog. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Like I've got so much money that eventually we'll hit a threshold where you would just kill your dog. And it's weird that he does that. Uh, and that weird. no one is talking about that, you know? Yeah. Hmm. What, what are you weird doing in the guy. south of England, Steve, Steven Spielberg? And why? I don't have a dog. I'm just getting people to kill their dogs for me. Weird guy. Weird guy. Weird guy. Um, good, good filmmaker, though. So good filmmaker. Fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's why it's fine. Tom Cruise then makes his way to the residence of Dr. Iris Hinneman. Um, Professor so she's Pomona the, Sprout from Harry Potter. Sure. Yep. She loves plants. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, he gets scratched by a plant that has, uh, has uh, poison in it, and it's a whole thing. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't really like the sentient vines. It was a what, bit no? too fantasy and not quite sci-fi enough. And as a man who really? loves fantasy sci-fi, like I love all the Guardians of the Galaxy, Star Wars side of sci-fi, mm. but this was kind of like near future, you know, grounded with its grounded mm. around its central premise. Uh, yeah, the world and, suddenly goes a bit um, Alice in Wonderland, doesn't it? Yeah, like, it, it's no, just like for, mm. why do you have a sentient vine? Why is why is that relevant to to the precogs really? They do exist in the real world, not to that degree, but I could see like genetic modification having become such a thing that that is a thing. Mm. I mean, they don't have eyes, so they can't really see you. They can't. That's another eye thing. Oh, my <gasps> Lord. The they, vines they have eyes. Do you know what else didn't have eyes? The car. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what else in this film doesn't have eyes? <laughs> I don't know, I kind of bought it. It's at the wackier end of the spectrum on this movie. But also, this character is pretty wacky. Um, yeah, mad. I, I think she's great in it. She's like a classic film noir kind of character and um, very, very eccentric. 
but still manages like to tell uh, Anderton that basically sometimes all three of the precogs don't actually necessarily agree on their visions of the future. And when that happens, the one that deviates the most from the others is then typically just sort of ignored and that's called a minority report. Hey, it's um, the name of the movie in the movie. I love it so when that did, happens. I did it's really like he like looks the at the line. camera and says it. I did really like the line, uh, the precogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, like it, I don't think you could do this in the movie, but the book, all three of them disagree on Anderton's future because one takes into account just a normal murder. One takes into account the future where he is already aware that he's going to murder. And another takes into account the future where he is potentially going to change his mind. So there are actually three minority reports, but it's much neater for the movie for there to be a majority report and a minority report. Um, Anderson asks which one would have generated the minority report. And Hinneman tells him, of course, it's the most talented, which is the female, which is Agatha. Mm -hmm. So now his plan is that he has to go back to pre-crime and steal the precog in order to get the vision from outside of her head, which is kind of like a Mission Impossible thing, actually. It reminded me of the setup to him stealing the knock list from the CIA headquarters. Mm. Do you reckon they should have just replicated that shot for shot? Yeah, he should have gone in like on a big wire and stolen her that way. Um, yeah, with Jean Reno. <laughs> yeah, with, with Jean Reno. And, and the problem Rains. is he, his face is still melting at that point and it's just dripping onto the, the pressure pads on the floor. <laughs> oh, the face melting is so weird. But we're not, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. Um, no, sorry, he, he, he knows that he'll be caught because they'll scan his eyes as soon as he's within a certain distance of even a fucking city. So he has to undergo an eye transplant at the hands of like a, an underground shady doctor at the introduction to Peter Stormare's Shady Doctor is him sneezing with so much mm. snot coming out of his nose, God. which he then just puts like into his hand and is like, no, don't worry, I'm going to use loads of antibiotics. He won't get sick. Um, uh, what an insane performance. Like, Especially to see it back-to-back with the insane performance um, that Lois Smith gives as Iris Hinneman. Uh, oh, her name's Iris, which is an I thing. Um, Hi, yeah. Nice. Uh, the, the Peter Stormare's unhinged doctor is <laughs> at first amusing and then like everything else in the movie gets darker the more you learn about him. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys catch yeah. that like it like so he he jabs Anderton with anesthetic um in yeah. a really weird move uh, and then yeah. starts talking to him about how actually they know each other because Tom Cruise's character had put him in prison in Baltimore because he was a doctor who was working on a burns unit but used to set fire to the patients first. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, really dark. <laughs> he's like, only yeah, a bit, though. He's like, oh, I, I put them out, some quicker yeah. than others. Yes, um, <laughs> really dark. But like really Tom Cruise, John Anton is, is, is very high at this point and he's kind of laughing, isn't he, with it? Mm. Which, which gives a creepiness to the scene as well because... He's like, oh, I know you from before. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting scene. And then his insane uh, assistant guys... as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that whole thing is like, that whole sequence is horrible. I think because they, like, 
it would be horrible if it was just watching him get his eyes pinned open, which he actually did, by the way. That's Tom Cruise's eyes. I was going to ask if he did. Of course he did, though. Yeah, of course. It's not even the worst worst thing that Tom Cruise has done regarding eyes in the 2000s so far. Not after Mission Impossible 2, where there was actually... They they developed a machinery so that the the knife could be plunged towards Tom's open eyeball, but it would automatically stop millimetres from his eye. Oh my do, you, God. do you remember the shot of the knife going into the eye in Mission Impossible 2, Steve? I don't remember that. I okay, look it. it up and then bear in mind that it's yeah. real. Um, okay, <laughs> good. Go on. Well, my, I was going to ask, how are you guys with like eye stuff? Because I'm actually okay. The, it, it did make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, it's very clockwork orange, isn't it? The eyes pinning open. Yes, That's what it, it reminded is. me of. Yeah, And the, the thing is, is that 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 would make a whole section of the audience uncomfortable. But Spielberg mm-hmm. knows that it might not make some people uncomfortable and he needs to make the scene uncomfortable for everybody. So mm-hmm. they bring in the thing about, like, there's a reasonable chance that actually he's in danger here because he wants revenge yeah. for being put in prison. Um, so there's yeah, that whole yeah. tension that's underlying this 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 whole scene. Um, Let's not forget the, the, the two eye puns he does, basically, yes. tandem. Oh, she only has eyes for you. It's a real eye opener. Eye puns. <laughs> <laughs> right. At that point, I was like, "Oh, this is the shit I do on our podcast." Anyway, so for fuck's sake. Yeah, Jesus. you're the eye doctor from Minority Report. <laughs> yeah, I am. I um, burn people, but oh, but he does give he does give him the surgery anyway, um, and then leaves him alone to recover. Says he needs like twelve hours. He gives him some drugs as well, which is good of him. Like he gives him a little gift. Um, and leaves a sandwich and some milk in the fridge for him, which mm-hmm. uh, is very mm-hmm. nice of him. And then mm-hmm. Tom Cruise takes the drugs and, and falls asleep. And that's when we get um, the scene, which is instantly so much more colourful than any other scene in the movie. Um, it, yes. It's basically in, in Technicolor compared to the weird black and white that the, the rest of the film is in. Um, and it's him and his son, Sean, at uh, a swimming pool, and they compete about holding breath or whatever, and the son is holding the watch to time how long Tom Cruise will be underwater for. And it's a great shot, actually, of Tom Cruise underwater, and you see the watch fall down. You think, oh, he's dropped the watch, and he goes back up, and he's just gone. And it's horrible. Like, that, that panicky performance from Sean is... Uh, from Sean? From Tom Cruise is is great. Horrible scene, do, though. Do you know I what makes it, it even worse? Yeah. Is that... What's that? The, what makes it worse is that we already know as the audience that Tom Cruise can hold his breath for up to six minutes at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But not 20 yeah. minutes like a whale. No. Uh, which is what he says he can do. <laughs> so he's a liar. Um, yeah, he's a liar. But he gets distracted by a pretty lady underwater, doesn't he? He does, But when he yeah. comes up, like, uh, absolute genuine fear, I felt. The, uh, the real panic, just, just of the kid going just not just not there and it's busy and everyone around him is like laughing and and playing and like they're just not in and he's i mean that the the best bit of the scene is that he doesn't panic immediately is that he's like hey you know where does he go where does he go and of course we as an audience know that his son is missing like it's already been set up that his son went missing and that's why he's a drug addict um because whitworth talks about it with with lamar um but yeah he doesn't panic immediately and we're all, yeah, the audience is going like, well, you should be panicking. And then he slowly gets more and more panicky. And then he wakes up um, with, you know, the famous, the, the other famous image from this movie, I suppose, which is the bandages over his eyes. But the pre-crime team is in the building and they send out these small little robotic scanners 
known as known as spiders um, that are sent into spiders. all the rooms, and then you get the absolute the balls of Steven Spielberg with the shot of the spiders going in. That's all overhead, and it follows yeah. like from room I assume to room as a set they built. Set. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. So, it was so cool. Yeah, very cool. Clearly purpose built for the camera to look down into. Um, yeah. Steven Spielberg, how, like, not, not a director Sorry. that um, deals with sex a lot. Not a sexy director. Um, there's a lot of sex in this movie, and it's all sort of a bit seedy. I don't know. I don't know why it feels a bit voyeuristic whenever we see sex in this movie. And one of the couples in uh, that gets stopped to like have their eye scan are having sex, and that's just such a weird thing for a Spielberg movie. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. Just that. Just that whole thing in general is quite creepy. In in terms of like, I really like how the residents are used to these spiders. Mm. Um, so it's very creepy when the mum's comforting her kid and like saying, "Just just lie still, let it just let it scan. It's, it's fine." And like when the couple are arguing, I mean that's quite funny. Yeah. Couple are couple are arguing, let him scan and then carry on arguing. But it's yeah. just so kind of normal. It's like, oh, here come these fucking mechanical yeah, spiders it must, again. Must happen a bunch. Like yeah, weird. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, then there's that great sequence where Tom Cruise hides in the bath, in the ice bath, um, so that they can't find him. Um, and it's and very convenient that, that we just that... learned he can hold his breath underwater. I know, I know. Yeah. But also yeah, yeah, um, that one bubble that gives him away, that's real. <laughs> um, Tom Cruise did that. And it's very weird that that is something that that seems like it would be difficult to do to produce just one bubble like that from your nose. Mm. So that's another weird little uh, weird skill. Uh, yeah, another string for his bow, I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what gives him away, and they have to scan his eyes six hours before they've healed or whatever. But. It, Oh, you can feel it. It looks like it really hurts. It looks like (laughs) it burns. But it does work and it doesn't identify him, which means the next day uh, he can go to the um, pre-crime headquarters and he melts his face. Uh, (laughs) Very odd. Um, Tom Cruise obsessed with deforming his face or wearing masks at this point of his career. Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, so, so, yeah, so that's how he won't be recognised. And then, when obviously he's kept his old eyes so that he can scan them in to get into the temple, like he did earlier in the his movie. His mother gave him them. Well, exactly. My mother gave them to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. And then there's that weird slapstick thing where he drops the eyes and he's he's chasing <laughs> yeah. them down the slope, and arms outstretched, like yeah. hunched over his knee, like. <laughs> and he manages to grab one like right by like the eye tendon as it's about to go down the drain um yeah uh, uh, just a weird little what a weird little sequence to include in there like it's weird little thing like just to pick up on is that i i like the fact that he has to swap out his entire eyeballs in order mm. to avoid security just so that he can then use his actual eyeballs to get through security. Well, it's so he can get close, isn't it? Like, he wouldn't even get close if he but had it, his actual eyes in his head. Sure, sure, I get that. But it is a little bit of a leap to imagine that, that this, like, this police uh, security units of, of 
you know the the future world can Wouldn't detect have wiped you via him from the system. Yeah, they can detect yeah. you from an advert and immediately sweep down and catch you. But they but they don't bother to restrict your access to the uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, to the most secure point. place on the planet. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's I worth pointing out. It. It's worth pointing out at this point that I didn't realise until actually later in this moment is that Tom Cruise doesn't have brown eyes and he has brown eyes after the surgery for the what rest of the movie. What colour are Tom Cruise's eyes? They're like light. I don't know if they're quite blue, but um, thought that was. Oh, cool. he has green eyes. Yeah. Oh, he does. He yeah. has like hazel green eyes. And they go. They go a lot darker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah See yeah. now, Steve, I'm colorblind, and I can't easily tell the difference between green and brown at a glance. So that Wait. meant fuck all to me. Oh, sorry, Tom. <laughs> sorry, Tom. Sorry, Tom. Sorry, Tom. Sorry, yeah. sorry. sorry mate. We've all had a drink. And that's sorry. another vision-based thing about this film. Um, you can't see colours. It's very clever that Steven Spielberg made a reference to that you can't see colours. Specifically yeah. Tom Ashford. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, he steals Agatha, the precog, by flushing them both out of the system. Um, and then takes her to a hacker friend that he has who extracts the vision of Crow's murder so that Anderton can see it. But there's actually nothing new about it. Maybe there wasn't a minority report. Um, In fact, he comes to the conclusion that he doesn't have a minority report. And then she begins to have a seizure. And that, that again, that image of Anne Lively being drowned is, is seen. Um... And as they're watching that, the pre-crime sort of division catch up with him again. And they sort of, that that whole escape sequence in the shopping mall is really good as well with her predicting little bits of the future yeah. so that he can he stand knows. behind don't the right home. balloons. Yeah, yeah. And she says, yeah, he yeah. knows, uh, uh, don't go home and all of yeah, that. The and, balloons and, and bit. The yeah. balloons bit is great and really tense. And, so and the fact yeah. that he has to pick up an umbrella so that they can escape in the rain afterwards. Um Spielberg, man. Geography. The way he does geography. Really good. Um, And then they track down Crow's address. Now, obviously he wants to know what's going on. If he wants to prove that he's not going to kill Crow, don't go to his home address, I reckon. Yeah. Because that puts you directly in a situation where... (laughs) Well, you might. You might kill him. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he has to know, doesn't he? But I always remember watching this when I was younger, like, just go anywhere else. Yeah, do and anything else. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He could have waited out in room 1009, which he accidentally yeah. goes into. Imagine if he just sat in there until the murder was supposed to happen and then popped out to meet the pre-crime crew and went, fucking <laughs> idiots, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but by then, the way, but I have stolen a precog, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But then that's the whole thing, isn't it? Is that, that yeah. his personality would never have let him make the choice where he just sat back and waited it out. And that's what determinism kind of is. This was all laid out for him. There was no way he wasn't going to be in this situation. Um, Crow isn't there, but he does... I mean, this scene is so horrible. It's so Mm. dark. He finds a pile of photographs of children, basically, including photographs of his own son with Crow. Um... And that scene where he realises that, oh, it's not a setup. there's no minority report, I'm genuinely going to kill this person because he's the yeah. person that took my son, is great. 
like because also the, at this point I'm like I I would kill that guy. I would. I would. Like, kill I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Like you, you want that guy to get to, to die, but you also don't because then that's then he's done the thing. But like to, that scene is just it's just always dev- devastating when you see the images on the bed and you and you slowly go, oh, yes. this is that what that guy yeah. is like. And then like he he's saying. Uh, he's got him pinned to the ground, I think, and he's saying, "Oh, no, I was gentle. I was gentle." I, I so he comes home, and doesn't he? Tra- he comes home and and he tries yeah. to like Anderson tries to extract a confession out of him, and then yeah, yeah so yeah, that that's what happens. And, and you're right, Steve. You're like it's a, I, I put him in a barrel, yeah, and I put him in the bay, yeah, and then he floated back to the top, and I I was gentle. And uh, <sighs> Tom Cruise's whole performance in this is pretty incredible. The the way he goes that 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 specific moment I really love I love it so much that I'm going to point out again when he realizes that oh I'm I am going to kill this guy is fantastic and yeah. um that whole street that whole scene is very stressful with Agatha shouting at him to not do it and that he has a choice oh god um, yeah. but he's I don't like know if it's when he actually, him up when the, and, yeah yeah I don't know if it's when the trigger goes off or not but there's this the particular shot that I've got like my hands, my hairs are standing on end already. But it's when Agatha's against the wall and she screams, "Oh no!" and she's like shaking. Yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. It, it's 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 really chilling. Um, and she keeps repeating to not kill him, and that he has a choice, and he does have a choice, and he actually does wait out the timer and doesn't kill him, and through tears starts to read him his rights, like he's going to arrest him. Another great bit of performance. Where he's like choking back his emotions to try and like arrest him, and yeah. Crow is like really annoyed by that, and yeah. and and the situation is is maybe not darker, but is a different kind of dark, where he reveals that if if Anderton doesn't kill him, then his family don't get anything, because he has had had an arrangement with someone to pretend that he killed his son to have fake photos of him and Anderton's son so that Anderton would kill him and when he was dead Crow's family would then get a payout to be okay with dying so that your family are okay whatever's going on in this future world there's some weird stuff there's some dark stuff going on you know potentially with people selling their eyes on the street and you know um with uh uh, yeah, with this whole scenario where his family get a payment if Anderton kills him. Uh, yeah. And so he goes after Anderton to try and force the outcome and the gun goes off in Anderton's hand and the murder kind of takes place as it kind of appeared to. Although it's interesting that like the the, the same line lines of dialogue appear. Mm-hmm. Like the, you're not going to kill me. Uh, when we saw the the previs was like you're not going to kill me and this it's like a realization of oh you're not going to kill me mm-hmm. um yeah interesting and he seems to kill him by accident which means he's still on the run it absolutely blew my mind when i first saw that just that whole scene just just the realization and the twists and the turns but even the little details of it like the man at the window was just a billboard the third the guy yeah stuff yeah, like yeah. that yeah blew the red herring of that mind yeah it's cool it's great uh I, I, the the way that that like basically the whole 
everything before this scene, the way it comes together for this scene, I actually think is really, really impressive. Tom, I assume you're still on board at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, I do really like this film. Um, I will say that I, I think having seen it two years prior, mm-hmm. um, some of the impact of the reveals was lost a little bit on repeat viewing. Yeah, for so sure. Like, in terms of that immediate emotional, yeah, sort yeah. of thing. So it was still satisfying, but it was things like the third man. I'm immediately like, it's a fucking billboard. I can see it's a billboard. Right, yeah, yeah of course. But I'm, I, 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 I do like all the technicalities of it. I like yes. watching it unfold. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. The, the whole scene here is incredibly like emotionally moving and satisfying. Great Tom Cruise performance, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So good. Um. So he's still on the run. He flees with Agatha, and then a little bit later, Whitwer and the, and the pre-crime team arrive there in the apartment to investigate the crime scene. And Whitwer is immediately like, "This is an orgy of evidence," and it points to the idea of him being set up. Um, and he arranges to meet Burgess at Anderton's flat because he's pretty sure he has a decent idea of what's going on it's amazing how quickly colin farrell goes from being the villain of the film to suddenly like flipping to be like oh actually he's like the ally that's going to help save Mm -hmm. the day and then he's immediately taken out of the film as well yeah yeah which is great so quickly you're like this guy is anderton's salvation uh so so what happens is like he recognizes that in agatha's previs of anne lively's murder the ripples on the lake are going in a different direction to the other two and what he surmises from that is that actually it's a separate murder happening at a different time and all the killer would have to do is hire someone that no one cares about to enact a murder which will then be stopped and then have somebody else take do the exact same murder and there's a good chance that the technician will delete it because they think it's an echo. Something that was set up two hours earlier. Um, When he shows that to Burgess, Burgess seems pretty taken aback by it and seems like he's on board but then notices that he can't hear uh, a hovercraft, he can't hear footsteps, uh, footsteps up the stairs and he can't hear the clickety-clack of little spiders um, <laughs> and so shoots him dead uh, It's so shocking Yeah, it really is, it's suddenly revealed that Burgess is the villain and has been the villain all along but you're still not quite sure how or why yeah. um, and at the same time as this uh Anderton takes Agatha to his ex-wife's house in the country, Lara. And there is that uh, incredibly emotionally affecting scene where she describes what Sean's life potentially would have been like uh, mm. with the running at university and then reali- and like catching up with his dad, but realising that he can't catch up with his dad because he's still a six-year-old boy and... And his dad's Tom Cruise and the fastest runner on the planet. Yeah, there is that. There is that. But uh, uh, Samantha Morton's performance there is absolutely great. Um, And uh, very emotionally affecting. Um, And Tom Cruise's reaction to it is very emotionally affecting when he starts to break down into tears. And then what does she say? She says, and and I'm really sorry, John, but you're going to have to run again. 
And he's mm-hmm. like, what? And then she just starts shouting the word run. Goes, run. And it scares yeah. the shit out of me. It's really <laughs> scary. Really, it is really, really scary. scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she's just, absolutely... You're not expecting it. It's such a quiet scene, isn't it? And yeah. Then... She's like yeah. possessed in this movie or something. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. great. It, it's so good. Um, and the pre-crime catch him and they halo John Anderton. Um, for... Up for, by the way. Sounds great. I know, right? Halo me immediately. Yeah. Um, yes, halo me immediately. Steve, let's plan to uh, murder each other so that yep. we then get <laughs> yeah, haloed. Yeah. Uh, I'd love that. Um, okay. I was about to say, well, now we said that, we've got the ball rolling, but because well, the, bo- the ball roll. Because <laughs> uh, the ball. Of the, earlier yeah. on in, with the... Yeah. yeah. And we're on the back straight here uh, towards the kind of... We're barreling towards the end of the movie. Um, Burgess meets with Lara to comfort her about Anderton's uh, arrest uh, just before he's about to attend a ceremony in anticipation of the nationwide pre-crime rollout and Lara brings up the case that that, that John was interested in this Anne Lively thing which Burgess says that he has uh, no no memory of um, but does does say that he'll go to the containment chamber and and ask about it and uh, what he uh, actually says is um, he'll uh, he'll see if anyone drowned uh, by that name uh, what 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 was her name and she says her name's Anne Lively but I didn't say that she drowned uh, at which point his face just drops and then there's that bit I talked about earlier where he stands up yeah. turns around and moves the chair from between them. And it's yeah. so threatening. And you're not sure if he thinks that she knows. And it's it's confusing. But he does tell her that tomorrow he will come by the cottage. Uh, <laughs> so that's my favourite bit of the movie. I can't get over how he pronounces that. Do, do you remember that line at all? Or No. Yes. Yes, no, I, I okay, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to try and find a YouTube clip for you or something. Steve. <laughs> um, so obviously, Lara is then suspicious and realizes that he's lying, and takes. Does, he, does she take Anderton's gun and his eye? Yes, because again, Which, even with him in the prison system, they haven't restricted access to pre-crime. <laughs> <laughs> And she also it's has a lot her own of paperwork. Eyes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't understand. She wouldn't be allowed to just get into pre-crime headquarters, right? No. There's a few plot holes here that don't make everything quite marry up. But let's barrel towards the end of the movie, and, th- and then we'll kind of deal with them. I think. Yeah, um, yeah but I will say, sort of around this point, it's like okay, like the the movie sort of ended twice already. Yeah, in, I don't in a way, many... not necessarily satisfyingly, but you're like, oh, okay, this there's there's another there's another section. Okay, yeah, I, I like kind it. Of at this point. I like the last twenty minutes of this movie because mm. I think it's it's it kind of mirrors the first part of the movie in the way that Steven Spielberg is an incredibly kinetic film director, yeah. and the way that the movie speeds up at this point. Yes, it's to speed up to tie everything else up neatly, 
but I think it speeds up quite nicely. And I like what happens where he's at the press conference, he receives a nice gun, but then he gets a call from Anderton. And Anderton basically just explains the whole movie to everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, he explains yeah. the entire he, mystery. He's literally tell- he's talking to us. Yeah, and, and, and because it's a, it's a phone call, so but it's done via, like, voiceover. Um, mm-hmm. And he basically says, so Anne Lively is the mother of... Um, Agatha, and she wanted her daughter back, which would have obviously ended pre-crime. So Burgess is the killer that used exactly the thing that Wit was said. He knew it would be deleted as an echo. Um, and there you go. That's the whole sort of mystery that that he was looking to solve. Um, but the performance here from Tom Cruise, I think, is really good. The bit where he gets angry that, that he mentions Sean and says, don't you ever say his name. He's very angry. Yeah. He's very determined at this point. It kind of cuts from um, him doing the voiceover to, to to that bit. Don't you ever say his name in the kitchen with his hood up and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is just a really cool cut. And you're like, oh, it's Tom Cruise. Yes, Tom fucking Cruise. <laughs> yeah. um, and-, and, the, and the cutbacks to like the precog saying his lines before he does. Yeah, really effective. Um, really and cool. seeing yeah. the crowd react to them broadcasting the footage of Agatha's pre-visualization of her mother's murder, mm-hmm. and they all realize it's, it's Burgess, and they all gasp. It's all really effective. And it comes to a yeah. head where they meet on a balcony, um, where Anderton says to Lamar that, like, you have a dilemma here, which is because there there is a hovercraft on the way because they have foreseen that you're going to shoot me basically and you can either shoot me and pre-crime is proved to work but you go to prison or you get haloed or whatever or because you know your future you can now change it and you can not kill me one of your best friends (laughs) uh but it proves the pre-crime doesn't work. What he ultimately does is he shoots himself in a shot that is designed to make you think that he's shot John. Uh, mm. It's quite an effective shot, actually. Um, the whole end bit feels very Mission Impossible. It does a little Just bit. the way it's kind yeah. of revealed. Is it, and there's an old because, man with a gun. <laughs> yeah, there's an old man. Is it because Tom Cruise has got a hood on, so he looks a little bit Ghost Protocol? He does look for, a bit Ghost like Protocol. That. Yeah. There's an um, old man with a gun and, and a, a switcheroo where he's, you know... There's that whole thing, but in in terms uh, of, yeah. of of in terms of film noir detective kind of things, you know what else this this feels a bit like is Poirot, where you get all the suspects together and go in the accusing room, yeah, and and he takes you through the whole crime and he goes, this yeah, is yeah. how it was done, and he puts all the threads together, yeah. and that's why I Isn't quite that like right, this Max von Sydow, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There, there's yeah. only one suspect, so you know the outcome of it. There's no like gasp yeah. where you're like, oh god, it's Max von Sydow because of course it is. But yeah, yeah. I do like that it's in keeping with that old timey detective kind of tale. Yeah, um, yeah, nice. And actually, I don't think that that is the bit that wraps it up all neatly uh, to the detriment of the film. I'm still fully on board. The slight detriment of the film is is the next bit that happens, which is when in voiceover Tom Cruise wraps up that like 
pre-crime was shut down and then you see him with Lara and they're together in Anderton's apartment and now she is pregnant with another child and they have put mm-hmm. the precogs somewhere remote where they can't they're not surrounded by people who would potentially be murdered so they can't see the murders um yeah. cut, it cuts to the the Weasley family doesn't it in in the- right <laughs> yes they do look like the yeah. and then the camera pulls out and it reveals them in this incredibly remote location and it's beautiful but that is the Spielberg and now everybody lives happily ever after ending yeah 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 yeah, and that's the end of the movie. I think that little bit at the end. I don't hate it. It's just classic Spielberg being like, "And now we wrap all of this up in a yeah, very like yeah, sweet kind of yeah. way, uh, also, an emotionally sweet kind of way." I kind of feel like, as you say, like it's to wrap it up in a very sweet. Every, the world is exactly as it should now be. Kind of, you know, yeah. naive. There's a naivety to it, and and it winds me up that like obviously the treatment of the precogs isn't good. Right. Yeah. So the, the the precog the pre crime program isn't great, but the fact that they just immediately shut it down and release mm. all the people, I'm just like, wouldn't it still been useful to like be- use them to prevent murders and then just not imprison those that you stop from doing a crime? The amount of murders that would have happened though. <laughs> Straight away. Right, but yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and also now we have revealed that there are minority reports and the precogs don't agree all the time. Yes. So it's all fallible. Like, yeah. who's to say which of their reports would have been correct, which means everybody who was arrested, actually, in some of the reports, might not have murdered. And so you can't arrest them because there were but, disagreements amongst yeah. the precogs. So they, that's they, my point. Yeah. My point is that you, ca- that, you know, that you can't guarantee that they're going to actually murder somebody, but you could still prevent 99% of murders that could have or probably would have happened. But and what if it's go, not 99%? What if there was a minority report in every single case? But it wouldn't matter if you let everyone go. Yeah, I don't know. Which they they do keep an eye on them. But yeah. also, here's the thing. When you are haloed, okay, you go into a dream world and you're kind of where everything is perfect. So there's a read of this movie where everything you see after John Anderson is haloed is made up in his head. Everything gets wrapped okay. up in such mm. a neat way because yeah. that's him processing it and that's him in in prison it being haloed. Interesting. Wrapping it all up for himself, giving himself and everybody else a happy ending, including the precogs, and giving himself a life where he's back with Lara and they're pregnant with another child. You know, giving himself that, even though there's actually the much darker uh, implied ending where it is that Burgess got away with it um, and John Anderton is being haloed in prison. Which I think is a really good uh, sort of uh, takeaway, sort of good uh, interpretation of it. If it weren't for Steven Spielberg, who has said the that, fa- that that's not the case? Has he has he said that? I haven't. No, read no, no. It's just okay. it's just the fact that this is Steven Spielberg as the director, and I can't imagine him ever having a story where things, you know, like don't have a kind of uh, yes, sacrine, I, sickly sweet ending. I don't think that's the intention. I actually don't like that read of the movie very much. Uh, to, mm. to disagree with you slightly, Tom, I think that that is. An ending interpreted by people who make YouTube essays on film and are desperate for content. Yeah. And it's the same kind of YouTube channels that are like, that would point out loads of plot holes. 
because there are loads of plot holes in the end, I think. And it's like, yes, how did Lara get into the containment system? Why would Lamar Burgess just leave a box of evidence lying around in his office <laughs> when he knows that Lara's suspicious of him? Like, why would he leave John's gun and eyes right there for her to use? Sure. You know, how did the eye that... Uh, um, that Tom Cruise used to get into the temple, then find its way back into the bag that he dropped and then into an evidence box for Lara to use later. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, you can wrap that up by saying, oh, well, Anderton just made it up because he's being haloed and it's in his head. Or just let there be plot holes. I'm fine with plot holes if it leads to a satisfying ending. The biggest thing for me is that why why is is John being uh, set up? Um, what? Why go? Why? Why oh. do you need Leo Crow to pretend to have killed his son so that John will kill him and then be haloed? Why does that need to happen? Well, I think the in terms of the, the intended explanation for that, I think is Tom Cruise is going to discover that Lamar is the murderer of Anne Lively, and therefore he's setting him up to yeah. very conveniently get him out of the picture. But there's not really much reason to suspect that Tom Cruise would have solved this mystery. Right. It's an elaborate way to go about making sure that nothing is kind of said, right? Yeah. Like, uh, he could have just come along and, and taken the, the hollow thing or whatever it was that he's using and destroyed it and gone, oh, look, yeah. we've lost some more evidence. Yeah. That, that whole it. thing doesn't actually necessarily sit very well with me. And it's mm. actually the kind of what movie was it where we were saying like oh it was Mission Impossible where you're like when you're watching the movie this all makes sense and I'm totally in the movie and as soon as you yeah. start analysing it once you've watched the movie it all just sort of crumbles apart. <laughs> yeah. There's like there's yeah. one aspect of this film where I'm like that actually doesn't ring true but when I'm in the film it makes complete sense and I actually think that is a bigger strength to like that says more about Steven Spielberg's filmmaking abilities than anything else to me is that he's able to make me just go yeah I'm along for this ride um so it doesn't ruin the film that much for me which is why I give it the score of bloody 4.5 out of 5 I loved it this time around very much enjoyed it loved it I love the tone of the movie I love that it's kind of ridiculous and dark and I don't understand why this isn't being held up as one of the best sci-fi movies of the noughties. It is more and more these days, but I understand why we've taken 20 years to get to this point. Anyway, what did you guys think of it? Uh, I also give it four and a half stars. I think um, it's so utterly watchable and fun to look at and sci-fi and weird and shiny and dark and a bit scary. There's just so much fun technology and like rules and business going on that like I just absolutely love it. Um, it's like this insanely high concept, but pulled off so well. But um, I was watching this whole thing like this is a, this is a five star movie. This is five stars. I'm gonna give this five stars. Mm. And then it, and then the end when he literally tells the audience everything and it all gets wrapped up and that whole stuff did take a little bit off of it for me. Um, and I was like, actually, that kind of didn't leave a sour taste because I still really liked the end of the movie. But I was like, yeah, it's not quite perfect, and that's why it doesn't quite get. But that's still bloody nine out of ten. That's great. The, it's good. The Steven good Spielberg experience. Like, there's yeah. very few movies where I'm 
completely satisfied by the end and I don't feel he's over-egged it. Jurassic Park is one of those. And, mm. I mean, the, the Jaws is one of them as well. Jaws just ends. It's great. Uh, but yeah. um, uh, it, he he picks up that habit on Schindler's List and it right. works really well on Schindler's List uh, where the final sort of scene of that movie tom i think we've talked about it on this podcast before haven't we um it has the it has the actors stood with either the person the real person that they played in the movie or relatives of the real person that they played in the movie laying uh stones on the actual grave of the actual oscar schindler it's incredible you see the actors out of character and holocaust survivors paying respect to the person that the film is about um and it's really beautiful, and it's really moving, and it's really affecting. Um, and from that point on, Spielberg goes, well, that worked really well. I'm going to pop on a little uh, very saccharine moment at the end of all of my movies, which in this mm. one is the, and I'm, you know, my wife's pregnant, and we're back together, and the precogs are living on an island. You know, it's that. <laughs> um, Tom, what did you make of it? Um, I think I enjoyed it essentially as much as you guys did. Uh, I do really like this film. Mm. Um, there are a few little things that, that bring it down for me, and it's, it is nitpicking. It is stuff like the, little, the plot holes or the fact that a lot of the film is based around uh, a bit of a MacGuffin, like the whole thing about the Minority Report is just like, oh, now you've got to go and find this thing. Oh, you've now got to go and find this thing. And then it doesn't really amount to anything in the actual plot of the movie yeah. uh, again not damning criticisms of the film just something that that kind of you know I picked up on and, and it dampened it a little bit um, and I did find that the pacing at the end it the film's pacing leads you to think that the showdown is going to be at the family house and then there is another like 15 minutes it's a very yes. good 15 yeah, minutes yeah. that I that I prefer to the to what the ending would have been um, but it still kind of feels like it's a bit of a slowdown. So I'm giving it uh, four stars, but it is a very strong four. Lovely. Mm. A big, strong four. Those stars big, strong are bold. Yeah. If this was the first time I'd seen it, it probably would be four and a half because I'd have that like wow factor of being like, oh, how did they, you know, how did that twist happen and stuff? Yeah. Um, so maybe I just the- need to leave it 10 years and then watch it again. <laughs> what about the cruiseness, though? That's an interesting one for this movie, I think. Cruiseness is a hard one because it's a very good performance uh, and there's elements of it that I think only Tom Cruise could bring to the role. That, that sort of like the paranoia, that sort of uh, nervous, mm-hmm. almost yeah. vibrating energy. Um, but he doesn't do a whole load of stuff that, that we think of necessarily for like cruiseness. Like he, mm. he he doesn't do any crazy stunts. Like yes, he jumps from one, you know, like vertical car to another, but it's obviously CGI. It's not like huh? real real life impressive. Oh no, they actually built that entire set, Steve. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> uh, so ten out of ten. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, but also, he's not like charming in the way that we would expect something like Jerry yeah. Maguire. So it, yeah, it's a very sure. good performance, um, and it's a very Tom Cruise performance. But I'm going to give it a, a seven out of ten, a respectable seven. Interesting. I've not gone far from you. Uh, I disagree with one of your points, which is like 
there's stuff in here that only Tom Cruise could do. I actually think that there isn't anything in here that only Tom Cruise could do. I think you could get a pretty similar movie with uh, Nicholas a Cage. lot, a lot of other, yeah, Nicholas Cage with with a lot of other actors. But I do think there's lots of stuff in here that Tom Cruise is very good at. Um, you know the right. the undercurrent of darkness kind of stuff, but yeah, it's not a very cruisy movie, which ultimately is what I like about it. I think uh, because yeah. it kind of it does, I think, take him quite subtly into 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 kind of new territory. Um, so I, I gave it a six out of ten. So we're not we're not far off there, but. Oh, uh, Steve, what do you reckon? What do you make of the bloody cruiseness yeah, of this I mean, bloody he's Tom got, Cruise film? Been on this bloody Tom Cruise podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's like he's got his intense panicky thing. He's got he's got the first bloody Tom Cruise run, from what I understand, the proper yeah. one. But we don't have much grinning and cockiness or charisma. Really, he's not a particularly charismatic guy in this movie. Um, he's very serious, isn't he? So I, I've also gone for seven. Um, mainly for all that kind of intense, panicky cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Would you guys recommend this film? Oh yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, me too. Um, and it's so good, would a lot of yeah. I mean, it's really good. So would a lot of crit- critics around the time. Like it holds like a a pretty high score on on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. The the, the reviews when it came out were like incredibly positive. Um, a lot of it, like, uh, like some some people felt that it, it maybe didn't tackle the themes that it brought up. But I'm I'm always interested in when people when filmmakers just lob themes out there and see what you do with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people pointed out the very interesting visual style of this, and that they were surprised that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg, two huge blockbuster guys, created such an interesting film that was still entertaining. And audiences kind of lapped it up as well. Because on a budget of $102 million, which is a pretty big budget for early 2000s, it made about $360 million at the box office. Which is big, you know, for uh, a two and a half hour long, dark sci-fi movie. I guess a lot of that is like, yeah. you know, it's a blockbuster and it's Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg. Um, the appreciation of it has gone up over the years with people like saying this is a great sci-fi movie and that it's like quite character-driven as well as story-driven. Um, I mean, War of the Worlds is even more character-driven than than this, their, their, their second and last collaboration um but it's also like weirdly influential like then like having having scientists come on and discuss like future technology became standard for for sci-fi movies after this and this was the first movie um to have an entirely digital production design so like you know previs Right, where like mm. all of the production design is done on computers rather than hand drawn or knocked up with models. This is one of the first movies right. to do that one hundred percent of the way through. Um which is interesting. Um you know, uh and uh yeah, I think this is an interesting movie and I think it its legacy will probably grow as as time goes on, I reckon. Which is probably yeah. a good a good place to uh 
to leave it, I think, for this week. Uh, before we wrap up, though, it's obviously time for our long-running game. Uh, only one of us is allowed to look at the IMDb trivia page for each movie, and this week it's me. I'm going to present Tom with three pieces of trivia. Only one of them is one that I've made up, and Tom has to discern which one that is in <laughs> Two Crews and a Lie. Okay, all right. So, uh, obviously I can use... Uh, well, you can use Steve here. Um, we've all used Steve. We've all used Steve <laughs> to some degree. Um, Last around. Yeah. Uh, so where did we get up to? Uh, Steve, we've started putting a little bit of money on this. Um, mm. I can't remember if that's what we were doing when when uh, when Risky Business came out. I don't know. Don't know what. Uh, but uh, no, what do you? What, what, who I've had a bit well, of a run of bad like, luck. To be honest, would you like a tenner? I did owe a tenner. Yeah, at one point. Yeah, and oh, then okay. I sort of I sort of said, oh, double or nothing. Um, okay. So uh, then it went quid. up to like twenty. But I've hit a bit of a bit of a run of bad luck. Um, yeah. Tom, can we do double or nothing again uh, this yeah. week? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, great. Why not? Great. So if um, if if I correctly fool Tom and he doesn't guess which which piece of trivia is is the lie, um, mm-hmm. I'll owe him nothing. Um, right. But if he does guess which one it is uh, under mm-hmm. the double or nothing rules, I will owe him twenty thousand four hundred and eighty pounds. So. <laughs> Fingers crossed on this one. Fingers All right. crossed. Change. <laughs> okay. All right. Number one. From the very beginning, Steven Spielberg wanted Greta, which is Dr. Eddie's assistant, to sing something by ABBA because they were Swedish. But Peter Stormare suggested that she should sing something else to make the scene even more absurd and landed on the Swedish children's song, Smak Grodona. The Small Frogs. This was chosen by Peter Stormare and is a song usually sung on Midsummer Eve parties in Sweden. Mm. Now you see, mm. that seems very specific, Adam, but I also can't trust you given that we recently had frogs in Magnolia. That's oh. interesting. That's, yeah, maybe I've done a little, yeah. a little trick there. Yeah. Um, the scene where Lois Smith, who plays Dr. Iris Hinneman, kisses Tom Cruise was not scripted. Tom Cruise's reaction is of genuine surprise. Hmm. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Mm. Number three. Tom Cruise was so taken with the kiss that after the take, he asked Lois Smith to marry him. She agreed, and they were married in a private ceremony in Scotland. <laughs> right. I don't know why Steve's laughing. Which one? Which one is the... I don't know Which one have I made up, Steve? What do you think? Well, the well, the thing is, <laughs> did Steve disappear? No. So, the <laughs> thing <laughs> is, with fact gone. three, right? That can only exist if fact two was true. That's true. But then, if oh, fact yeah. true is, if fact mm. two isn't true, then then both would then, be lies. Then neither's three. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I don't know, Tom. It's, it's a tough oh. one this week. <laughs> yeah. You're you're trying to seek out which one kind of disagrees with the other two, I guess. You're trying to seek mm. out a little yeah. minority report here. Oh, yes. Here we go. Oh, yes. Now you see, frogs, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Frogs has nothing to do with it. So, I mean, I'm tempted to go with number one. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> 
but something whether whether it's free will or determinism i i could not say but something is pulling me to number three I think your, number three. Maybe I was always destined is it to because say of, this. Is it because of all the facts you know about Tom Cruise that you you it, know that that one is might not be true? Yeah, it, it might be all the all these different podcasts because we know that done. he hasn't married her in Scotland. Yeah, I already know. We, we literally twenty twenty two, but that he never married that woman. But, but we, hmm. but we're not in twenty twenty two. We're in that's, that's what's given you the inclination. Yeah. That that might be the lie. Okay, the pre-crime of a lie in Two Crews and a Lie <laughs> is telling me that number three is the lie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, I didn't realise you knew so much oh. about Tom Cruise. To be honest, I thought you were the one who yeah. knew less about <laughs> Tom Cruise. This podcast. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well done. I suppose you guys really uh, sort that out. So uh, I now owe you forty uh, twenty thousand. £480. Could we do double or nothing next week? Yeah. Yeah? You'll make your money back. You'll make it back, Adam. You'll make make it back. back. I'll make it back. And that is, is of course, why we play Two Crews and a Lie. Before we do actually properly leave, we have to talk about the Minority Report video game. Oh, of course. Have you guys, ever, Steve? I know you've played it with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. Tom, have you ever played it? Do you know anything about it? I, f- I feel that I have played it, but I, I oh. it's what it's a hazy, like it's kind crime vision kind of <laughs> memory. I'm not it's, sure if it's true or not. It's like a platformy beat 'em up kind of thing. Like you can't mm-hmm. kill anybody. It was one of the first games I ever played that had ragdoll, ragdoll. physics. Ragdoll, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's and you the, could, one of the things I love. You could throw about. people through glass, glass, uh, and, no, and loads knock of glass them off. In the movie. Built like ledges yeah, you could and knock stuff, them off right. ledges, and and you could there were jetpack levels and stuff. And of course, the thing that made it really weird is that Tom Cruise does not give his likeness to anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you cannot buy action figures of any of Tom Cruise's characters, which is really odd. Actually, if you think about how marketable those things would be, I'd love an Ethan Hunt action figure, right? I'd love a Vincent from Collateral action figure. That would be very cool. But he doesn't <laughs> let anybody um, use his likeness, and especially not in video games. So in the Minority Report video game, John Anderton is voiced by... Um, uh, who's? Uh, it's Hank from Detroit, Become Human. I never remember his name. Mr. Krabs. What's his right. name? You know his name, that guy. I don't know his name, but I know who he is. He's also in the video game, six foot, f- six foot three, and blonde. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So absolutely nothing like Tom Cruise. Um, but you could also uh, there was a little cheat you could put in. It was called Slizzo Mizzo, and if you clicked R three, it would go into slow motion, and you could move the camera around in real time. So you could do your own like ragdoll physics bullet time sort of stuff and it was just I the totally coolest. forgotten about that yeah Sli- and, and it had so mizzo was just unlocked a weirdest yeah, memory yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. i had no idea i remember that and That's large so cool. arms if you wanted to have no uh like <laughs> you couldn't take damage um <laughs> and it had the concussion guns and the six oh, sticks and everything yeah. 
It was a good game, man. It was a good game. I'll link to some yeah. YouTube Let's Plays or something. Yeah. Yes. Oh, what good and memories. before we wrap up any further, Adam. Oh, God. Yeah, go on. Just want to point out that I, I did look up uh, your pre-crimes, Adam. But unfortunately, you didn't have any because you don't have a future. <gasps> That's <laughs> devastating. <laughs> What's going to happen to me? Well, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't be. Maybe we won't be back next week. Maybe this will be the last time we wrap up. Maybe you'll be killed by Steve's murder by magnets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, it was again. a pleasure to have you. Um, uh, let let people know where they can find you if they want more of your bollocks. <laughs> hey guys, fancy more of my bollocks? Find me. <laughs> uh, uh, mine, mine and Adam's podcast we do with Little Lucas Way. Uh, little Tiny Lucas Way uh, is, is what is music. Uh, it's it's a it's a lovely time where we talk about music. Um, what is music podcast? You find it everywhere at What Is Music Pod on Twitter. That'll do. Uh, don't follow me. I tweet rubbish. Um, Great, cool. That's the only thing Thanks, I've got Steve. to plug, really. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. And while you're going looking for Steve, come and tell us what you thought of the movie and what you thought of our thoughts on the movie. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Cruise Views Pod. Email something in a little bit longer uh, and we can read it out on the show. Cruiseviewspodcast at gmail.com. Come and find Tom Ashford and Adam Glasspool on Letterboxd. You get a little sneak preview of what we think of all of the uh, the movies. But while you're doing that, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Austin Powers in Goldmember before next week's episode. This podcast will self-destruct in five seconds. Mm-hmm.